Hashem Hashem Naseh Benatzliach, Shiur Torah. Great to be back in Aventura, Baruch Hashem. Continuing our series today, we are up to number 53. And uh, for anyone who missed out the series, uh, they should definitely check it out. You go to our website, bezatashem.org. Uh, and uh, also on uh, our YouTube channel, anyone that missed the series, or on SoundCloud, and Bezot Hashem soon, we're going to have uh, both a new website and also a new application. You'll be able to get all these, uh, uh, what we have right now, and uh, many other new things, Bezot Hashem. Uh, and uh, so there's a lot of, lot of Bezot Hashem, a lot of really good things. But anyone that missed any of the lectures in this series really is uh, missing a lot, because each lecture... Uh, Hashem gives us new things to say. We try not to even repeat the same story more than once. I think I repeated the same story a couple of times, but overall, I think most of the stuff that Hashem gives us each week is brand new. Um, and uh, I think that this week, we can try something new, but it requires your participation. Since Hashem is telling us what to say any, anyway, let's just do it based on whatever you say. I have the Avot, obviously. We studied the Avot that we have, but uh, we always miss the questions and answers. A lot of people tell me they have questions, and since the lecture itself is a couple of hours long, sometimes longer, we end up not answering certain questions because people are tired or they have to go, whatever. So since this worked out really well, we did it in New York, and the kids got really excited about it. Uh, One of the lectures we did... I uh, asked the people what they uh, want to talk about. Just ask me whatever questions you have. And I'll answer them through the lecture, not on the spot. I'll answer them through the lecture. Make it as part of the lecture, I'm answering your question. So whenever Hashem gives us the answer, He'll give us the answer. So you see that, number one, it has nothing to do with me. So don't give me any credit. It's all Hashem. And number two, you see how deep the Torah is where you could literally ask any question and still connect it to any other part of the Torah. That's the point. So... Let's start with uh, some questions. Yala, no? Want me to ask the questions too? Whatever you want. Any question you want. Any question you want. Bezat Hashem, I'll do my best to answer it. If Hashem gives me the answer, I'll answer it. Number one. Number two, if, uh, you know, I'll try to answer it, um, you know, through the lecture. If I don't answer it, remind me. I made a blessing before, so. Okay, so the que- first question is, how does somebody that used to be cute turn into a kofel? That's the question. And now he's trying to get other people to leave the religion, to leave Hashem, because he turned into a kofel. How does something like that happen? That's the question. Okay, that's question number one. No, next. The second question is about Okay. 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 The answer is no, but I'll tell you why during the lecture. Uh, the question was, can someone prove their their Judaism based on their DNA? The answer is no, based on halacha, and I'll tell you why during the lecture because it'll keep it interesting. Next. Okay. And we know Mashiach has to be 
כן. That's the descendant of David Amelech. That would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> okay, next. That's three questions. No? Can we start building it now? Get a couple of contractors? Okay. Next. Moshe Rabbeinu. Oh, it's pleasing words to my ears. Complain about Am Israel? Ken. Right. better question. Why didn't, he, why didn't he pray earlier? Why did he wait till the end of his life to pray for himself? Even more so. Right? Why are you waiting for the last moment? It's a good question. No? Okay, guys, leave the room. Did oh, hold on one second. Did everybody on, online hearing the questions? You guys hear the questions? Okay, one question was, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, if we know who the descendants of David HaMelech are, another question is, can we start building the Bet HaMikdash now, or we have to wait for Mashiach? Another question was, uh, can someone prove their Judaism based on DNA? Another question was, why did Moshe Rabbeinu uh, complain against Am Yisrael that they didn't pray for him if he didn't tell them ahead of time to pray for him? Uh, another question is, why did Moshe Rabbeinu actually... I asked this question. Uh, I asked myself the question. So. Uh, why did Moshe Rabbeinu wait till the end of his life to pray for himself? Why didn't he pray 40 years already? He could have prayed. And now you're asking another question. Okay, so who is the one that's actually koshering the wigs? Okay, it's a good question. Right, someone says they're kosher, but they're not kosher. Uh, so the question is, what's, why would somebody say that uh, the wigs are kosher, when in reality, all, f- all facts prove that they are not kosher? And then also there was another question, I think, uh, in the beginning, about uh, how somebody that... Uh, does Kiruv can turn into a kofer and actually, instead of dedicating his life to helping people do tshuva, now he's trying to get people to leave the Torah. What else? You got more questions along the way? Okay, but say that, yalla, Bezat Hashem, Hashem will give me the words to give you guys, Bezat Hashem, the answers, especially through this lecture. Again, 
I remind you again, if I have the answers, it's not me, it's Hashem. It has nothing to do with me, it's just Hashem gives you the words because of your schut, not mine. You, when you do Zikoy Arabim, and you actually do lectures to help people do tshuva, because you actually want them to do tshuva, not because you want money, not because you want fame, not because you want fortune, then as we've seen already over the last few years, you have a lot of Baruch Hashem Siyati Dishmaya. And um, Hashem gives you the words to say, because sometimes I'll prepare a lecture. I told you guys this a few times. Sometimes I'll prepare a lecture. I say, let's say I'm going to cover 15 points. I take, you know, write down a little notepad. It's 15 different things that I'm going to cover. I go to the lecture. I have the lecture. At the end of the lecture, I go over the 15 things. I talk for three hours. Maybe one or two I actually talked about. The other 13, nothing. So what did you talk about for, th- for three hours? Things that they wanted to talk about. How do you know what they want to talk about? Hashem, put the words in your mouth. So that's how it works, Baruch Hashem. You do cube, you have the same thing, Bezot Hashem. So anyway, the Mishnah in Avot is Mishnah Gimel Chaf Aleph. It's uh, 321. So the Mishnah starts, Rabbi Lazar ben Azar Yaomer, Im en Torah, en derech Eretz. Im en derech Eretz, en Torah. Im en Chochmah, en Yirah. Im en Yirah, en Chochmah. Im en Dat, en Bina. Im en Dina, en Dat. Im en Kemach, en Torah. Im en Torah, en Kemach. Translation, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah says, if there is no Torah, there is no moral conduct. If there's no moral conduct, meaning good manners. If there's no moral conduct, there is no Torah. Or morality, I guess, is a better translation. If there's no wisdom, there's no fear of God. If there's no fear of God, there's no wisdom. If there's no knowledge, there's no understanding. If there's no understanding, there's no knowledge. As you can see already, there's a pattern here. If there's no flower, there's no Torah. If there's no Torah, there's no flower. So Torah is mentioned twice in the beginning and the end. First it says if there's no Torah, there's no morality. And at the end it says if there's no flower, if there's no Torah, there's no flower. If there's no flower, there's no Torah. So obviously those are two different things completely. But Bezad Hashem will explain how all of this connects. Now first and foremost, like we do... The way of Chazal is to always make sure that we know who we're dealing with. Who we're dealing with. Who's giving us this advice? Because based on the basic meaning even of what Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah is saying, in essence he's covering practically every single topic that you have to do with from the beginning of your life until the end of your life. So here is Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. In essence he's trying to teach you everything in two sentences. Everything you're ever going to need is in these couple of sentences. So why should we listen to him? Who is he, Bechlal? In Hebrew they say, Lama miyata. Who are you, Bechlal? What do you think you're going to tell you? Who is he? So Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah is 10th generation Tana, and he's also one of the descendants of Ezra Sofer, Ezra the scribe, one of the uh, parts of the uh, Torah, one of the 24 books of the Tanakh, talks about Ezra and how he enforced everyone to become religious, how he's responsible for an enormous part of the Torah uh, that we have today. And um, again, Ezra Sofer is uh, one of the giants in all of Judaism since the beginning of mankind. 
Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah is one of his descendants. This by itself wouldn't mean much. Similar to the extent of how somebody tells me, listen, I know I don't keep Shabbat, I know I don't keep mitzvot, I know I don't do this and I don't do that, but you know, my grandfather was a big uh, tzaddik, he was a uh, rabbi. He, he wrote a few books, he wrote this, he wrote that. I said, yeah, you know what? Esav, his father was Gdolado. His father was Yitzchak Avinu. But Esav, Gemara says, has no share of the world to come. Even though his father was the giant of giants, he's one of the patriarchs. When they say Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, they don't say Avraham, Yaron, and Yaakov. They say Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Why? Yitzchak is one of the giants of all generations. We can't even fathom how holy he was. When the Mashiach comes and the Avot come, the Avot are also going to come. Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, they're all going to come. David the Melech is going to come. We're not going to be able to come close to them. We're not going to be able to shake their hands. Oh, Avraham, how are you? How are you doing? How was it in Ghana? They're not going to be able to do that. Their Kedusha is going to be so high, we're not going to be able to get close to them. We're going to burn up like a lava. So this is Yitzhak Avinu. Yitzhak Avinu was Esav's father. Esav has no share of the world to come. Lama. Because Esav every day he said, tomorrow I'm going to do tshuva. Tomorrow I'm going to do tshuva. Tomorrow I'm going to do tshuva. But he never did tshuva. But he knew. Every day he said tomorrow, but he never did. So all of those people that say, my grandfather was a big tzaddik. Okay, what about you? Your grandfather maybe is in Gan Eden. But what about you? Your, your, your ultimate destination depends on what you do now. Not your grandfather. Your grandfather is in a good place. not helping you though. Maybe he's getting you some more time. But he's not helping you to the extent where you're going to just enter, wallow into Gan Eden because your grandfather wrote a good book. It's not going to help you. So, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, being a descendant of Ezra Sofel, is great. But what about him himself? So, in the Gemara, Maseret Brachot, page 27b, and also it's the uh, beginning of 28. It talks about a giant, one of the very famous arguments between Rabban Gamliel and uh, Rabbi Yoshua. A very big debate between the two. And Rabban Gamliel was the Nasi. He was the president. And uh, in order to make sure that Am Yisrael stayed united and there's no difference of opinion, there's no one saying, oh, let's go to a different Bet Knesset, Let's start something else. He was very, very strict with enforcing the laws. So there's a few times that him and Rabbi Yoshua had a machloket. One of the times is they talk about uh, Arvit. If you guys got to it, I think you probably already got to it. Um, they talk about Arvit. Is Arvit mandatory or supplement? You have to do it, you don't have to do it. So, the Gemara talks about a story of a uh, student comes to Rabbi Yoshua and he asks him, is it mandatory or not? And Rabbi Yoshua says, no, it's not. It's not mandatory. So then he goes, the same student goes to Rabban Gamliel and he says, Kvod Arav, is Arvit mandatory or it's not? Ban Gamliel says, of course it's mandatory. Of course it's mandatory. 
He said, yeah, but uh, Rabbi Yoshua, also Gdolador, he's not uh, some guy. Gdolador. He said, no. Which, if in case I forget, Shalom, you know, the halacha is today, the Yido, is that, yes, it's not mandatory per se, but the minag that in essence became halacha is that it is mandatory. All of Amisel took it upon themselves to make Arvit mandatory. So, anyway, he uh, says, okay, say this, let's wait for all the Talmidim, all the students to come to the Kolel, to Yeshiva, and ask the question out loud, because Rabbi Yoshua is going to be there. Ask the question out loud, I want to see what he does. So this is exactly what happened, the students came, everybody came, Rabbi Yoshua came, and the student asked for the Rav, Rabban Gamliel, the Nasi, is uh, Arvit mandatory? He says, of course it's mandatory. Does anybody have a different opinion? And Rabbi Yoshua, because he wanted to protect the honor of Rabban Gamliel, Rabban Gamliel is still the Nasi, he had honor, even though he disagreed with him, to protect his honor, he stood up and he says, no. No, no one disagrees with you, you're right. Rabban Gamliel says, yeah, but in your name, isn't it just in your name someone is saying that you actually said the other thing? You said it actually it's not mandatory? And they're here to prove it. So stay standing. And he started a shiu of why it's mandatory and so on and so forth. And he, the whole time, Rabbi Yeshua is standing up. So the Chachamim eventually got really, really embarrassed for Rabbi Yeshua, this old man, Tzaddik, Chacham, Kadosh, he's embarrassing him. And this wasn't the first time. It happened a few times like this. So they said, enough. Enough of this. Let's remove Rabban Gamliel from the position. Let's remove him. But who are we going to replace him with? So the first choice is, let's replace him with Rabbi Yoshua. Now, we can't really do that because he's directly related to the matter. Rabban Gamliel is going to think it's something personal. It's not personal, it's for the Torah. These battles, by the way, you, these arguments you hear about in the Torah, it's not personal. It's not like uh, you and I get into an argument, oh, you're ugly, oh, you're fat. It's not like that. They're all for the honor of the Torah. How to make sure that we worship Hashem to the best of our abilities. How do we honor Hashem to the best of our abilities? That's the whole thing is all about that. It's not about, oh, he's smarter, he's stupider, he's written. That's nothing like that. It has nothing to do with that. Those things didn't even talk to these people. These are holy people. So sometimes people read it literally without reading the commentary from Rashi, from Rambam, from different places. They start thinking, oh, look at these people. They're like little kids. Why are they arguing like little kids? They're not arguing like little kids. This is all for the honor of Hashem. So anyway, they said we can't actually add Rabbi Yoshua because Rabban Gamliel will be offended. We cannot offend Rabban Gamliel. Chas v'shalom. What about Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva, Gdolador. Rabbi Akiva has 24,000 students. They say, no, we can't add Rabbi Akiva because Rabbi Akiva doesn't have the merit of his forefathers. Rabban Gamliel comes from the seed of David Amelech. He's a holy person and his ancestors, where he comes from, are even holier. Rabbi Akiva comes from converts. So he doesn't have the merit of his parents being Moshe Rabbeinu or David HaMelech. So chas v'shalom, if Rabban Gamliel gets offended that Rabbi Akiva took his position, maybe he's going to pray and Hashem is going to feel bad for Rabban Gamliel, he's going to punish Rabbi Akiva chas v'shalom. 
So no, we can't pick Rabbi Akiva. So who can we pick? Who do they pick? They, they pick Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah. Why Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah? They said because he meets all of the requirements. First of all, as far as Schutavot, he has Schutavot. What's Schutavot? He's the, he's the descendant of Ezra Sofer. Doesn't get much better than that. Two, as far as Chacham, if Rabban Gamliel wants to test him in public or in private, see what he says, Rabbi Lazar knows the entire Torah. Any question you ask him, he can answer on the spot. No questions asked. Giant. And last but not least, if he becomes president, the first thing that happens is the Goyim come, they try to do different things, try to bother us. So if the Romans come and they want to bother us, they're going to go to the president first. So what does the president do? Bribe him. Rabbi Lazar has a lot of money. Rabbi Lazar is a multi-billionaire. Multi-billionaire. I did the math in the Gemara Masechet Shabbat. It says that Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah used to give a maaser. His maaser would be 12,000 cows. That was his maaser. Every year he would give 12,000 cows. That's his maaser. 10%. He gave 12,000 cows, which means that his profit every year was 120,000 cows. That was his profit. You do the math. Cow is what? $10,000? 10,000 times 120,000, how much? 1.2 billion. That was his annual income. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. How old was he at the time he's president? 18 years old. 18 years old makes 1.2 billion dollars. Better than any hedge fund manager in the world. So Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah had all the qualities. Tzaddik, Kadosh, giant. They come to him, they say, Kvodarav. You want to be the president? Let me ask my wife. Anyone that's tzaddik has to ask his wife. His wife says, maybe uh, you don't really look the part. You're young. And maybe they're going to throw you out because you look young. So he started praying on the spot. 18 hairs, though a white, came out. And that's why he says in the, uh, in the Agadat of Pesach, I look like... I'm 70 years old. Not I am 70 years old. I am like I'm 70 years old. Because on the spot, he had such, they wanted him to be present from Shemaim. They gave him white hair. Said, okay, he's the president. So that's who we're talking about here. That's who we're going to listen to. He's rich, tzaddik, great descendants. What else do you want? Doesn't get better than this. So this very same Rabbi Lazar, He's telling us some interesting things. First and foremost, he's telling us if there's no Torah, there is no manners. There's no morality. And if there's no morality, there's no Torah. Now when the the Rav Mibrisk says that when the Jews would see that they, uh, they're going to change a leader, they would do an investigation. What do they investigate? They investigate the new leader of the Goim. What do they investigate? If he likes uh, chocolate or if he likes wine, what do they investigate? They investigate his morality. Why? They want to know if he takes bribes. If he takes bribes, Amisal celebrates. If he doesn't take bribes, 
we start praying to Hashem, we start crying. Why? Because we know the only way you can deal with these people, you bribe them. If he's got, if he one of these people that doesn't take bribes, we have a problem. Why? Because as soon as he gets an opportunity, he's going to want to punish Am Yisrael. And if we can't bribe him, we can't do anything about it. So that's why they were actually all, that's why Chazal was very happy that Rabbi Lazar was rich because they knew that as soon as the leader of the Goim from the Romans said, so come, tried to mess with us, Rabbi Lazar can bribe him. What do you want? 100 million? No problem. It's in your bank. 200? It's already in there. 300? You'll have it by tomorrow. Roman Empire was pretty big. Roman Empire was pretty big. So anyway, Rabbi Lazar says morality and Torah are interconnected. They're intertwined. If there is no Torah, there's no way that there could be morality. If there's no morality, there's no Torah. Meaning, if a person uses their own decisions to decide what's good and what's bad. The problem is, is that it's not dependable. Morality cannot come from humans because humans change. One day, they think that white is good. That's in style. The next day, no, only the people that are in, in jails wear white. One day, they think that blue is good. The next day, no, only if you work in a hospital, you're allowed to wear blue. One day, they think that black people should be in the back of the bus. They're not allowed to drink from the same water as the white people. The next day, no, no, they should be president. So morality, when it's based on humans, it's flawed. It's what's in style, what's popular. What are people voting for? How do we make the most money from it? How do we take advantage of this? So morality from people is useless because it depends on people that are flawed. Now morality, when it, when it comes from God, that's something you can rely on. And the reason why is because God doesn't change. Despite what many goyim think, God doesn't change. Once he makes a deal, it's finished. Deal's done. So if the Torah is there, you're going to have morality. But he says here, if you have no Torah, there's, it's impossible for you to have morality that you can depend on. Whatever morality you have, whatever standards you have, they're not to be depended on. Even if today everything looks good, people look at America today, on the surface it looks okay. You start digging deep, not so much. Not so much. In the past... Everyone looked at America like they were, psh, wow, tzaddikim. Today, when you have the freedom of information, and you start investigating some of these past stories of American history, the standard of morals are based on America. That's what people today based everything. Everybody wants to be Americans. Israel wants to be like America. The Arabs want to be like America. Even though they hate America, they say, kill America, they want to be like America. Kill America, kill America, but let's open malls, like America. Kill America, kill America, but let's invest into helicopters and planes and parks and so on, like America. Everyone wants to kill America, but they want to be like America. Israel is like, oh, no, no, we don't need America, we have this, we have this, but you're copying them everywhere. Everyone wants to be like America. So America is like the standard. 
because America was look, looked up to. There were reasons they should. You should look up to them. They succeeded in certain things. But when it comes to morals, when it comes to things like that, it wasn't exactly like the picture says. First of all, there's a holiday that people love to celebrate. And by people, I specifically am talking about Jews. Obviously, we're not allowed. Jews are not allowed to celebrate Christmas. It's a holiday of idol worship. You're not allowed to celebrate any, really, of the Goyim's holidays. But there's certain holidays that you would think are neutral. Neutral. Holiday like, for example, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Thank God. Before I did tshuva, I loved Thanksgiving. Loved it. Why? It was my once-in-a-year opportunity to fry my turkey. I bought a big, giant thing. I saw it on some video or some news somewhere. I bought a giant bucket thingy, pot, that you could fit a whole turkey in. You fill the whole thing up with oil almost. You put a little bit of things, but mostly it's just oil and turkey. You fry it for an hour and 45 minutes. Delicious. Amazing. 35th floor, apartment, full of snow. You're frying turkey. It doesn't get better than that. Thanksgiving once in a year. But then you start looking at what, what's behind this Thanksgiving. What's behind this Thanksgiving? Do you know how many people died in this holiday of Thanksgiving? American Indians that were destroyed and annihilated from this world for absolutely no reason whatsoever other than greed. They, make them, they made them walk from one coast of America to the other. We can't walk to the bathroom barely. They made them walk from one coast of America to the other and most of the people died. I went to the Indian, American Indian Museum. I wanted to cry. This is Thanksgiving. This is, exactly. This is Thanksgiving. This is Thanksgiving. You say, oh, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. What Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving. You got the country from whole. You killed millions of people. What do they have to show for it? Casinos? You think they care about the casinos? Their ancestors want to be alive. So the morality is not exactly like we think. And there's a lot of other things, obviously. Point being is that when the morality comes from people, it's flood. In the business world, there's the, everybody depends on software, depends on technology. One of the most important technologies is antivirus software. You send a virus, you could destroy an entire company. Send a guy email. Email says, hi, it's your friend Justin. The guy opens the email, he presses on some file because he thinks it's his friend Justin. And the email says his friend Justin's email. Looks like exactly the same, like Justin sent it to him. He opens the file, it says, I love you or something like that or whatever it says. The guy opens a virus, he could destroy the entire company. He could shut down the entire company in a matter of minutes. So these antivirus companies are something we depend on. The problem is that anyone that knows a little bit about technology, especially people that are hackers and people that know a little bit about the behind the scenes of technology, they'll tell you that the biggest pushers of virus are the antivirus companies. The antivirus companies are actually the ones that create the virus. So you buy their software. They create the disease because they already have the cure. 
It's almost like the dentist punching you in the face to break your tooth and says, come back, I'll give you a ruka now. You understand? So here you have, you have things that are not moral. That's because it's coming from people. It comes from people, it's not dependable. It looks good. On the surface, it looks good. Coca-Cola looked good. Just that people didn't know that in the beginning it had cocaine in it. Coca-Cola. Why is it Coca-Cola? Because they put cocaine in it. But everybody was so happy because all the babies would stop crying as soon as you gave them Coca-Cola. They meant, you look at the history book, you see all these little babies, all the parents would give Coca-Cola to the babies. Not milk, no more breast milk, no more nothing. Where they give them Coca-Cola. Why? As soon as the baby had a sip of Coca-Cola, stop crying. Instantly. Look at the news reports in the old days. Later they found out, yeah, why he stop crying? He's high. The guy just did an eight ball. Real, 100% cocaine. What do you mean real? What, it's fake cocaine? Well, you know of anything? Well, there's a different type of cocaine? Not anymore. Not anymore. In the old days, when they found out that this is obviously an addictive drug and it kills people, when they found out that this is a drug that kills people and is addictive and so on, they obviously removed it. But the but but the point but the point is is that you had damage happen before people found out. Same thing with a lot of other things. There's a lot of drugs that go through the FDA, and they're released to the public, and only to find out a year, two years, three years, two into it that the drug makes people suicidal. Or the drugs makes people uh, going to you know it's a drug for a headache, but it makes people depressed. Give me the headache back. I don't want to be depressed. The drug is to cure fungus on the foot, but the guy wants to jump off a roof. I'll just give me the, don't give me a foot. Don't even give me the foot. Just don't let me, I don't want to jump off the roof. One time, I told you, seven years of health battle, you try everything. We went traditional medicine, alternative medicine, and at some point, I, uh, the problem obviously continued getting worse, and I got something called hypersensitivity. Hypersensitivity means that if you touched me, just touch me, regular, I feel it drastically more than you do. Which means that whatever pain I had, I felt it ten times what it really was. So it was already bad to begin with, but I felt it like ten times more. So it's like a little mini genom. So now, if, let's say, for example, you have, uh, let's, I don't know, you get scratch, you scratch your hand. It's a little bit, but it goes away. The pain goes away, I don't know, a minute later, 30 seconds later. Me, feel it for 25 minutes. 25 minutes, a little scratch. So I went to different doctors and this, and one neurosurgeon makes a million dollars a year, told me, yeah, you should take this drug. It's going to calm your nerves. It's going to do this. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. I said, okay, this guy's successful. He's smart. He's this. He's that. He's all these wonderful things. He tortured me a little bit with the tests. The tests were horrible because they test your nerves. To test your nerves, they inflict pain on you. So again, another level of genome. I told you guys you don't know all the stories. So anyway, with a million dollars a year, the guy gives me a drug and he says, you know, good luck to you. Everything's going to be okay. Two days later, I see myself. I'm in pain. Pain is not stopping. But all of a sudden, I'm starting to look at my roof and I'm like, you know what? Wouldn't be too bad to jump out of this roof. Start to become suicidal for no reason. For just looking at myself, I'm saying, ah, maybe I should jump off the roof. Not because I was depressed, 
just, I was just like, maybe something's going to happen. Start, I'm like, no, no, it's not good. So I go back to my day. Then I go downstairs. I, I used to be a smoker, so I smoked a cigarette. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what, maybe I should jump in traffic. See what happens. And then I, re- I catch myself. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I call my wife immediately. I'm like, honey, what is wrong with me? I start telling her. She goes, stop taking the drug. I just found it on the net. It's suicidal. I actually just found out. I didn't want to tell you. I call the doctor. He goes, oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you. We forgot to tell you that they, it's, a, it's, a, it's a potential side effect. It's a potential side effect. The bill me, no, they forget. So it gets worse and worse. So now, so now, but this drug had to go through a line of tests. And as part of its approval, they knew this drug makes people suicidal, but it's still in the system. And it's not the only one. There's plenty of them. That's why when you see drug commercials, Baruch Hashem, I haven't watched TV in a few years, but you see drug commercials, at the end of the commercial, there's a speed talker. A guy that speaks really, really fast, and he tells you all the side effects. Death. What? I just wanted, I, what? I just wanted for a headache. I have a wart on my finger. Why death? What happened? Anyway, dying. What? Your family's going to die. What? What do you mean? I just have, I just have an ingrown nail. Why is my family going to die? What do my kids do? What do they do? I just have an ingrown nail. Honey, shut the TV off. We got to move. The whole neighborhood's going to die. It's a plague. What? What happened? It's just for hair. I just wanted, I didn't want to put propecia. I want to put some hair or something. But they think that if they talk fast, you're going to miss it. And unfortunately, we do. Because Satan talks really, really fast. Satan talks so fast, you forgot it's him talking. Satan talks so fast that sometimes it makes it look like you're talking. So, first rule of thumb. You're looking for morality, you're looking for honesty, you could only find it from God. You will not find it in people. Now, this is extremely important. And the reason why is because sometimes you see stories that will shock you. Sometimes you will see a guy, there was a rabbi, tadik, kosher person, left everything, Millions of dollars, fame, fortune, everything, decided to go help people do tshuva and succeeded. And then one day, he loses his mind and he goes the opposite way. Not only does he stop being religious, but he starts making other people not religious, which is unfortunately a story that we're hearing about right now. Without mentioning names, this is happening as we speak. This is your first one of your questions. How could such a thing happen? How could somebody leave what you would think is the god of this world of idol worship, which is money, leave money, leave fame, leave fortune, leave everything, go help people do tshuva. Great, everything was working out wonderful. One day, disappears from the scene. Disappears from the scene. No one hears from him for a while. But now you're hearing little secrets and little stories and little horror things where now he's starting to do the opposite. Now he's trying to convince religious people to become not religious. How could such a thing happen? This has to do with morality. This has to do with morality because 
in the history of mankind, in the history of mankind, you will never find a single person that left the Torah because of the Torah. You will only find people leaving the Torah because of either people or their own desires or a combination of both. They either can't stand people, they saw some guy that looks like a rabbi, but really is a uh, molester. He's got a long beard, reaches the floor, he's got a hat that reaches the sky, but the guy molests little kids of Shem Achim. You have these stories almost every other day, it seems like. Principal of a yeshiva rapes kids. Principal of this one rapes this one. What's wrong with these people? So the secular people, the religious people, and the goyim, all look at this guy, looks like a tzaddik, looks like everything is great, looks like a little mini Moshe Rabbeinu, he's raping little kids. That's what the Torah is? No, my friends, that's not the Torah. That's people. That's people. So when you think that that person is a representative of Judaism, that's your first mistake. The second reason why people leave Judaism is because they're tired of making sacrifices and they want to start feeding their own desires. Simple as it gets. They like the material world too much. They want girls. They want money. They want fortune. They want fame. They want to celebrate this life without a care in the world. Be like the Greeks. Live for the moment. They're tired of praying every day three times a day. They're tired of t- saying thank you to Hashem every day. First thing that they wake up in the morning, before they eat, after they eat, after they go to the bathroom. Every single moment you have to think about this. God, I'm tired of it. I don't want to think about it. I want to think about myself. Little do they know that all of those mitzvot are for yourself. So when someone is looking at that, they're not leaving Judaism because of the Torah. They're leaving it because of their own desires. The Yetzirah convinced them they can get away with it. Their grandfather wrote a book. Their mother lights a candle for Rabbi Meir Balanes every Friday. Their cousin is a rabbi in some kolel. They think that they get piggyback off of somebody else's mitzvot. And there's a very famous story in the Gemara. Hilel Zaken is one of the giants of all giants in history. We read about him in the beginning of the Mishnah. His brother was very rich. And he came to him one day and he says, I'm rich. I succeed in business. You succeed in Torah. Why don't we do deal? I'll buy half your mitzvot. I'll give you half my money. I'll buy half your mitzvot. What's it to you? You'll have money. You could buy, build more kolels, do zikuyah rabim, make movies on the internet, do whatever you want. You have a fortune. I don't have that much mitzvot. So now I have mitzvot. I got a billion dollars, I'll give you 500 million. I got 10 billion dollars, I'll give you 5 billion. I'll give you half. Deal or no deal? A bat call from Shemaim came out, a heavenly voice from Shemaim came out and said, even if he would agree, even if he would agree, when you'd arrive to Shemaim, we'd laugh in your face. To think that you can buy a single mitzvah, forget half of his mitzvot. A single mitzvah with all of the money in the world. Not just your money, your five billion, your five trillion, your five dollars, whatever. All of the money in the world can buy one mitzvah. The smallest mitzvah, the biggest mitzvah doesn't make a difference. One mitzvah I can't afford. 
said in Shemaim, they use a verse from Shlomo Melech, said it. I think it's from my uh, Kohelet. It says, we laugh at you when you get to Shemaim. For thinking so foolishly that you can buy mitzvot after they were already made. You want to buy mitzvot? You buy them before they're made. You want to invest into Torah? You invest into the guy before he becomes Rabovadia, not after he becomes Rabovadia. There's a story of a guy, a rich guy, who invested in buying Rabovadia, Zechat Tzadik, Vikadosh Livacha, a BMW every year. And he thought he was doing a big mitzvah. He said he's buying Rabovadia, a car, I don't know, $100,000, $150,000 car every year. Every year he'd buy a brand new car. He was very, very rich. And he would consider that as tzedakah. Now, Avadya wasn't exactly too keen on uh, material stuff, but he just took the car and he would give it to his family to drive him around and so on. But this was not a uh, traditional thing. But the point is, is that one day, the news reports come out that the guy that was so-called donating this BMW crashed in a helicopter and died. So they asked, Kvodarav, didn't they say it's the Katatzim Mimavit? That charity, Shlomo Melech tells us, charity will save you from death. So how could it be that a guy that donates Tzedakah, BMW every year, or every few years, whatever it is, how could he die, not only die, but die such a horrible death, Mita Meshuna, this is a strange death, you know, from a helicopter. What they say? So BMW is not a, uh, it's not like a, giving Rabbi Ovadia a BMW is not considered staka. It's a gift. It's not staka. Giving Ovadia before he becomes Rabbi Ovadia a few dollars to survive, that's staka. After Rabbi Ovadia becomes Rabbi Ovadia, you give him a present, you give him a present. It's not staka. He doesn't need you. He's gdolado. He's a multimillionaire. He doesn't need your present. It's not tzedakah. Go give it to an avrech that doesn't have food to eat right now before he becomes gdolador. That's tzedakah. Go help Am Yisrael do tshuva by contributing to some organization that actually helps people do tshuva. That's tzedakah. But you want to give it to some famous celebrity that he already, he's already printing money in his living room? And you think that's the case? That's the case. That's just a gift. A gift. You don't get. You don't get special uh, protection from heaven for a gift. It's nice. Thank you. So you get. You get a thank you card. So now, when someone leaves the religion, how could such a thing be? So first and foremost, we have to understand is that when a person is basing Judaism on Jews, and he's basing his tshuva on the Jewish people, he's basing his conversion on the Jewish people, and for a matter of fact, he's basing his anything on people, any people, it becomes like an hourglass, you know the hourglass, where the grains keep dropping, dropping, and eventually they run out of the sand? where it's only a matter of time before they all let you down. And before your decision to do tshuva, to move, to convert, to join something, 
It's only a matter of time where that whole decision, the whole rationale behind your decision collapses. Why? Because it's based on people. And people will let you down. People will let you down. Your friend from childhood is not your friend anymore. Your best friend from three years ago, all of a sudden you don't talk anymore. Your colleague that you used to smoke a cigarette with 18 times a day, when you worked on Wall Street, he doesn't even call you. I had a guy that, Miskin, he had a lot of problems. He came from an enormous amount of money, came from a very, very rich family. As a teenager, he would crash his Porsches and Ferraris, that kind of money. And we were friends in the business. But I, he was older than me, but I took him under my wing because he was a mess. He was a psychological mess. Extremely smart guy. Like IQ off the roof. Very handsome guy, used to be a model. Like celebrity model. Everything going for him. Problem? Drugs. Drugs would destroy this kid. So anyway, so I took him under my wing. And I try to help him. Every time he get into trouble, I bail him out. Get arrested, I bail him out. Get high, bail him out. Too high, send him to rehab. Pay for rehab. And so on and so forth. But much, this, this guy became like my son. For years. Endless amount of problems. One of the times, he uh, got kicked out of his house. So I took him into my apartment. Now, one of my apartments in New York was on the seventh floor. And two floors down, there was like a community balcony on the fifth floor. So one time, this is one of the crazy stories you can't make up. So one time I went out and uh, I told him, listen, just do me a favor. Go to sleep. You got into some trouble or whatever. Go to sleep. Relax. Stop with the drugs. Stop with all the mess. Stop, please. Just, I'm only going to be gone for a few hours. Can you do it? No problem, no problem, no problem. And he was such a manipulative person. All people, by the way, that uh, have a drug addiction automatically inherit the ability to manipulate. Everyone feels bad for them. I was one of them. I'm a sucker for people like this. So anyway, he, uh, I go out. I come back. There's a few things, a few details I'm trying to avoid telling you. I come back to the house. I, my, the doorman to my apartment building tells me, where were you? I'm like, what? What happened? He goes, you didn't hear? I'm like, no, we didn't hear what? He said, he jumped out of your window. I'm like, what do you mean jumped out of my window? He goes, he jumped from the, fifth, from the seventh floor to the fifth floor because he thought that the cops were after him. Somebody was, he got high. He got high. He thought that he got paranoid. Somebody knocked on the door. He thought it was the cops. He jumped out of the window. Des- destroyed his leg. His leg broke into a million pieces. And then he started like crawling in the hallway. Mamash, a big mess. I'm thinking to myself, what is going on with this kid? A few hours I leave you, a few hours. So anyway, I go to the hospital, take care of this guy, this, that, whatever. 
Yeah, they had to put metal in his leg. Life of... Uh, have stories that can write a book just about these stories. Of course, the first time. As I told you, the story keeps going. It's a very long story. If I told you guys a story, it'd be 10 years. So anyway, so this guy jumps out of my window. I take care of him. His drug habits send him to rehab a couple of times. Every time, $18,000 coming out of my bank like nobody's business. No problem. No problem. The guy's sick. You love the guy. He's a good guy. You take care of him. As you would have it, one day I get sick. November 18, 2006, my surgery, my famous surgery takes place. I start dying. Everyone knows. People that know me know. People that don't know me know. Everyone knows. Yaron Ruven is dying. Some strangers come to visit. Some familiar faces come to visit. But he doesn't come to visit. He doesn't come to visit or even call for almost three years. And one day he calls me and he says, hey, hey, how are you? How's everything? I heard, of, you, know, heard you had a thing. I'm like, yeah, you heard I had a thing, huh? I'm like, where were you when I was down? He goes, no, nah, I don't know. I, I felt bad. I don't know. I didn't call right away. I don't know. It was, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, thank you for I don't know, but... Good luck. That's it. Guy like that. For me, a guy like that doesn't even call you, doesn't visit you. You nurse them much more than what I'm telling you. People will let you down. It's not just in religion. It's everywhere. So if you're basing your decisions on people, your decision has no legs. It's only a matter of time before it gets destroyed. If you converted because you like the Jewish community, you converted for the wrong reason. If you converted for a husband or a wife, you converted for the wrong reason. In Shemaim, they won't accept your conversion. But here you'll have to suffer with it. If you became religious because you like a community, you want to be part of some Bet Knesset, you became religious for the wrong reason. It's only a matter of time before the community will spit at you. It's only a matter of time before you're not popular anymore. It's only a matter of time before you're not invited to the community barbecue. Or before people start talking about you. Or before they start saying things that you don't really like. Or they don't accept your kids to school. Or they don't back you on some type of plan that you have. It's only a matter of time. Before they all let you down. Only a matter of time. They're all going to ask you for favors, but they're never going to return. All of them call me and ask me, oh, can you help my son? He left, he's off the derech. Why is he off the derech? Ah, oh, he did some drugs. Oh, he has a non-Jewish girlfriend. Oh, he has a this. Oh, he has a that. Can you talk to him? Can you do a lecture for him? Can you invite him? Can you go one-on-one with him? Can you do this? Can you do that? No problem. No problem. Whatever, your son is miskin, your wife's miskin, your husband, you're this, no problem. You want me to help? No problem. Here's a package. Give him, a, give him my number, have him call me, he wants to meet, whatever. Whatever it is, we work for Hashem, no problem. You would think that in three years you'd send $10 contribution. $10 contribution to the Zikwea Rabim. I sent you a package, $95 free. You would think, at the very least, you'd pay back the $95. 
because you make a hundred thousand a year you make fifty thousand a year you would think you know that we work off staka we don't get man from shemaim you think i helped your brother i helped your sister i helped you i helped something you think somebody's gonna do them no my friend no no it doesn't work that way it doesn't work that way if you're doing it for staka you're doing it for the wrong reason if you're doing it for all of these other things, it's a matter of time before the whole system shuts down. So when you get in, you tell the story, I made money, I did this, and I left this, and I did all these things. Initially, people are impressed. But this one specific person was expecting to get the same level of respect from the Jewish world that he got in the business world. And fortunately, it doesn't always work that way. He made an error. He spoke about somebody that he shouldn't have spoken about. Whether he's right or wrong is irrelevant. And that other person emptied out the laundry on this guy. He uncovered a lot of things that no one wants to hear. And in so many words, the Jewish world wasn't exactly very accommodating wasn't exactly very pleased to hear this news so he got embarrassed he got embarrassed and he ran away and now he's so upset at the Jewish people that he wants to destroy them this has nothing to do with the Torah even though he's trying to use the same Torah that he learned against them He's trying to, or he is being a naval birshuta Torah, a degenerate with, he thinks, permission of the Torah to be a degenerate. As the Ramban said, the reality of it is that he's not doing it because of the Torah. He's doing it because of his own ego. His ego was hurt. He was expecting people to applaud him. He was expecting people to kiss his, uh, you know what. He was expecting people to praise him. And as soon as a few tomatoes were thrown in his face, he didn't like it, so now he wants revenge. Do you remember a story like that in the Gemara? We just had Tisha B'Av. You guys remember a story like that? No. What story? Kamsa, Bar Kamsa. Kamsa, Bar Kamsa, same thing. Ego is hurt. has nothing to do with the Torah. He didn't go to the Goim and rat on the Jews because he didn't like the Torah. He used the Torah law. He used the Torah law against the Jews, saying, listen, if you bring the Koban, and the Koban is, has, a, has a gum on it, has some type of mum on it, they're not going to accept it. So what did he do? He created the mum. He cut the uh, sheep's uh, lip. And he knew the Jews are not going to accept the, uh, the Koban. What happened? Destruction of Bet HaMikdash. Why? It wasn't the Torah that destroyed Bet HaMikdash. People, his ego. It wasn't the Torah that made this guy go off the derech. Him and many like him. His ego. Lack of morality. No one in the history of mankind has ever left the derech because of the Torah. They only left it because of themselves. Because of their bad decisions. Their lack of morals. And their bad decisions. So here we see, if you want morals, you can only get them from the Torah. If there's morals that are missing, that's because Torah is missing. 
In a place where there's no morality, there's also no Torah. That's what the first part of this Mishnah is teaching us. To answer your first question. Imen chokhmah en If there is no wisdom, there's no fear. Fear of God. If there's no fear of God, there's no wisdom. In Sefer Mishle, Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 2. Shlomo Melech says, What's Chokhmah? Hacham Lev Yikach Mitzvot. That's actually Mishle Yudchet, 10.8. But he defines in Mishle 1.2, he defines Chokhmah as Musar. What's Musar? Torah. You want to have wisdom? Wisdom can only be found in the Torah. Only found in the Torah. Now, if you're talking about architects, scientists, biologists, physicists, and so on, this is not wisdom. This is knowledge. You gain knowledge for a profession. You gain knowledge for some type of thing that you do. It's not wisdom. Wisdom is a way that you run your life. Wisdom is a way that you're going to operate your life and what's going to happen beyond your life. How do you plan for those things? If you're a doctor, for example, it's great. But if chas shalom, you get into an accident and you can't move your body anymore, you being a doctor is now useless. It's useless. It's useless knowledge. Because you can't practice anymore. Wisdom, on the other hand, is something you can always use. As long as you're alive and your brain is functioning, you can always use wisdom. So first and foremost, if there's wisdom in this world, it must come from the Torah. It must come from the Torah. Why? Because the only one that possesses wisdom is Hashem Barach, And He gave you all of it in the Torah. Now, how do you know if somebody possesses wisdom? Shlomo HaMelech says, if... He's a chacham lev. If he has wisdom, he's going to do mitzvot. Why? Because the first thing he's going to do, as soon as he arrives at wisdom, he's going to ask himself, why am I here? What's the difference between me and a donkey? This was the question that Adam HaRishon asked. Gemara Maseret Psachim, I believe 119, asks Adam HaRishon, Adam, asked Hashem, what do I eat? Hashem says you eat the grass. So Adam says, so me and my donkey going to eat the same thing? So Hashem says, no, no, okay, I'm going to give you fruits too. Obviously, this is a midrash. What do we learn from here? We learn from here that what separated Adam Arishon from a donkey? What separated? What's the difference between you and a cow? Aside from looks. You can't tell me because you speak. Maybe it speaks also, you just don't understand. It speaks cow. I don't know, I saw, I saw a thing uh, one time. 
on, I don't know, National Geographic, so there's Discovery, one of those things they do about lions. And they made the, they showed the show of these two female lions, they had uh, their cubs, and they were protecting their cubs from other lions that wanted to kill the cubs. And they would like, whenever the lions would come attack them, the cubs would run away, the female lions would fight the lions, as soon as they ran away, they'd go look for the cubs. How are they looking for the cubs? They start howling or something to them. And eventually, the little cubs would find them. It's like, oh, Ima, Ima, how are you? So obviously, they're talking. The fact that you don't understand it is your problem. So you can't tell me the difference between you and lion is talking. He talks also. What's the difference? Soul? Prove it. Where's your soul? Show it to me. Okay, so you have a soul. So there's a lot of people that have souls. Okay, no, you're getting the right way. But how do you implement? Why the uh, the uh, the birds don't have a house? They have a house. The house has an even better construction than yours. So they fly. They don't need F-16s. They fly by themselves. Okay. Okay. Main difference is, main difference is you have Torah. Meaning you have instructions from God of what you need to do and how you need to do it. You have a guide. They work off of instincts like you said, but you have guidelines. You have consequences. They don't. They don't have Olam Abba. If a chicken kills another chicken, it doesn't go to Gainom. It doesn't go to Gainom. If a cow decides to carry a few things on its back on Shabbat, it doesn't go to Gainom. If a lion eats a non-kosher piece of meat, doesn't go to Gainom. Unfortunately, when a Jew does all those things, he does. It's consequences. Why? Because a Jew is given an instruction set. A Jew is given an instruction set that teaches him how to be moral. A Jew was given an instruction set that tells him where he came from. So, Adam Rishon explained to us that uh, if it weren't for the Torah, there really wouldn't be a difference between him and a donkey, and therefore there really wouldn't be a reason for Hashem to give him a different type of food. It would be the same thing. Since you're the same thing as a donkey, eat the same thing. He eats grass, you eat grass. What's the difference? The fact that you eat different food is for a specific reason, because your mouth is supposed to be used for something else. So now, this Torah, as soon as a person understands that he has some level of wisdom in his head, he knows that he has to figure out things, how to run his life. First of all, he has to accumulate information. You see little kids in the beginning, and their little baby is one of the greatest pleasures of being a parent is seeing the kids grow up. Seeing the baby from not being able to move, all of a sudden he starts moving. He moves an arm, he starts celebrating for a week. Moves the leg, it's like, wow! Starts like communicating with you, even without words. Starts smiling, you just think you saw Moshe Rabbeinu. Every little action, every little thing he does, or she does, it's the greatest thing in the world. So first thing you see, you notice that the kids... They try to test everything out. They put it in their mouth. They start touching it. They hit it. They kick it. They jump on it. They do stuff. 
Not because they want to get in trouble. Not because they're trying to torture their parents, even though sometimes it does. They just want to see what happens. I want to see what happens when I hit my brother in the face. Pah! The kid cries. Oh, that's funny. So the kid starts laughing at the other one. Why are you laughing? You just hit your brother. Oh, I don't know. He makes funny noise when he's crying. The little kid doesn't have a concept of pain. Like the other two-year-old doesn't have a concept that the one-year-old has pain. He just sees him just crying as a result of something. He's not connecting right away. That's a result of you punching him in the face. Or if he takes a piece of uh, scissors and starts cutting your dress. He doesn't think, oh, Ima's going to be really, really upset when she sees that I cut her dress. He's thinking, wow, this is so creative. Look what I made. Ta-da! He's happy about it. Or if they take a marker and start drawing on all your walls. They're not thinking, Hashem and Hashem, we're going to have to paint the walls again. No, they're thinking, look, Ima, son. What son? There's all types of craziness on the wall now. They're just trying stuff out. So kids, trying stuff out. It's amazing to see it. It's amazing to see kids trying stuff out. So the first thing that a human being does, similar to an animal, is trying stuff out to accumulate knowledge, accumulate experience. The next stage is to start making decisions based on this experience. Try to accumulate this experience and try to figure out how did it work out last time. Last time I jumped off the couch, it hurt my face. So I'm not going to jump off the couch again. Or maybe I'll jump and this time I won't do it. After the fifth time, they stop jumping off the couch. So they learn off of experience. Eventually, they mature. They grow up. They use other experiences. They start realizing that there are certain things they should do, there are certain things they shouldn't do. Sometimes they realize it early, sometimes they realize it late. But the point is, is that you start realizing that there's a third step. The third step is you have to start figuring things out before you take a shot. You have to start rationalizing things and start predicting things based on uh, previous experience, based on somebody else's experience, based on just common sense, and so on. So when a person arrives at this intelligent point, according to Chazal, and the Ben Ishchai said that a kid is an equivalent of a monkey until about six years old. Until about six years old, they're equivalent to a monkey. It's not disrespecting kids. We obviously love kids and we live part of our life for our kids. But as far as intellect is concerned, you can't really do much with a kid before he's six years old as far as, you know, really, really seriously educating them. You could do certain things certain level of discipline, certain level of education, but you can't, you know, have like a heart-to-heart conversation with a three-year-old. As much as you would like it, he's going to forget about it as soon as he sees some show on TV or computer or something. One time, there was a, uh, a bunch of scientists at the time of the Rambam that said we be- to the king, we believe that we can change the nature of anything. And the Rambam, who was a Renaissance man in essence, he was a philosopher, a doctor, a scientist, many, many different uh, professions, 
not only one of the giants in all of history, as far as Alakha and, and, and uh, all parts of Torah, but uh, it was also a, a giant even in the secular world. To such an extent that even the Goyim till this day have a statue of him saying he's one of the 18 most important people that ever lived. Tickets in Washington. So anyway, the scientists of his day, almost 900 years ago, said, we believe that we can change the nature of anything. And the Rambam said, it's impossible to change the nature of anything. Now humans, you can't change the nature because a human, you know, you can't prove it. You can't prove that you change the nature of a human being because he can act. You can tell me I changed his nature. Look, last, last year he was a criminal, this year he's a tzaddik. You can't prove he could be an actor. Last year he was a criminal, this year he's a bigger criminal, just has a mask on. We said, okay, so we could change the nature of a cat. Give us a cat, give us some time, we're going to change the nature of a cat. So they took the cat, the Rambam says, whenever you're ready, just let me know. No problem, I'll prove to you that you can't change the nature. This is actually a story that happened. They took the cat, they started training him. Six months pass. They go to the king, they tell the king, look at the cat. The cat is wearing a little bow tie, and he, he's holding a dish, and he's walking on two legs. He's like, look, we changed the nature of the cat. He's now believes he's a waiter. Everyone's impressed. Oh, wow, look at the cat, he's serving cheese, he's serving wine. This is amazing, this is amazing. Wow, ooh, ah, big deal. Call the Rambam, bring the Rambam. The Rambam that day was studying and he saw there was a little mouse going inside his tobacco box. So rather than kill it, what did he do? Close the box. He closed the box and he wanted to take it out, to throw it out. But as soon as he was about to throw it out, somebody came to his house from the king's uh, castle and said, the king is calling you. He put the box in his pocket. He forgot about it. So he went to the castle. He said, oh, the scientists are back. He for- Rambam forgot about this, he says. I forgot about this bet already a long time ago. Because he knew it's not possible to change the nature of anything. So they say, look, we changed the cat. And he sees this cat walking on two feet or two legs. And he's carrying a plate with this, and the Rambam immediately has a thought, Oh, he has a mouse. He opens the tobacco box, and he lets the mouse out, and as soon as he lets the mouse out, the cat goes back to his previous nature. The plate goes one wall, the bow tie goes another wall, the wine goes in the other wall, and he's going after the mouse. Without saying a word, he proves the point. Nature doesn't change. Now, a person, on the other hand, can change his behavior. But he has to have a good instruction set. If he's using secular instruction set, that instruction set is temporary. That instruction set is limited. So, for example, people that like to use, for example, things like uh, the self-help books or coaches like Tony Robbins... Uh, or uh, or uh, Zig Ziglar, or any of these uh, motivational type of speakers, or the book like The Secret, all of those things, they all sound wonderful. Be positive, positive things, positive things would happen. 
be good, good things will happen. It's nice. It's nice thought. But what about when you're positive and uh, you are uh, very positive? You have a mantra every day, I'm going to be positive. And you say to yourself in the mirror, I'm going to be positive, I'm going to be positive, I'm going to be positive 500 times. And you find out that Chaz Shalom, you're, uh, I don't know, somebody related to you has cancer. How's that positive? How's that secret work for you? How did Tony Robbins and Zig Ziglar and uh, whoever else that's your coach, how's he going to explain that one when you're uh, so positive? How about you're so positive, you say, I'm going to be rich, 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 I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be so rich. And you find out on Wednesday morning that your company, Lehman Brothers, just declared bankruptcy. And your whole 401k worth 1.8 million is now worth 18 cents. Because all of it was invested in company stock, and company stock is worthless. How's that for being positive? How's that for being a secret? It's so secretive, no one knows it. Law of attraction. How about your soul? Law of attraction is so fantastic that you attract a bunch of people to mug you and take to your Bentley. How's that for attraction? All of that is limited. It's limited in a sense, yes, there are certain aspects of it that are positive. Certain aspects of, let's say, for example, if somebody wants to sw- smile, force himself to smile for 20 minutes a day, it is proven scientifically that he creates certain hormones that improve his behavior, improve his state of mind for the moment. It's not going to solve your bank account problems. It's not going to solve your marriage. You still have to be a decent human being. It's not going to somehow bring kids to the world if your wife can't have kids or if your sperm cells don't work. It's not. Sorry. As positive as you can be, only God can do those things. So when you go and listen to all these things, these all self-help books, it's all wonderful, but it's limited. It's limited. The Torah, on the other hand, is given to you by God. God is always God. And if He's always God, that means He's not limited. There's no limit to Him. So here you have a person that's acquired a certain amount of information from being a baby to being a child to being a teenager to being an adult, he's acquired information. At some point along the way, once, twice, ten times, countless times, he's going to ask himself, what's the difference between me and the donkey? If he acquired wisdom, he knows that he had to come from somewhere. If he doesn't think he came from anywhere, there is no difference between him and the donkey. If he thinks that he came from an accident, as a matter of fact, the donkey's in better shape than him. If he thinks that his parents didn't actually create him, and he just appeared, then he belongs in a mental institution. If he thinks that his, maybe he came from his parents, because there's baby pictures, but his parents just magically appeared, then him and his parents need to go to a mental institution. Somehow they have to explain the beginning. You have to explain the beginning of how it all started. So people that try to explain that everything happened from some big bang, they still cannot answer the question of what was the beginning. First cell. Where did the first cell come from? Stephen Hawking can't answer it. All of these other scientists can't answer it. And the reason why is because the answer is something they don't like. It's called God. 
whether you want to believe God created Adam and Eve, or you want, you want to believe that he created a cell that somehow became Adam and Eve. Irrelevant. Point is, you still got to believe in God. And if you believe in God, why are you limiting him to only making one seed? If he's already going to create something, why is he only creating one seed? Why can't he create the whole chicken? Why does he have to create the egg? And if he create the chicken, why can't he create a monkey? And if he create a monkey, why can't he create a human? And if he create a human, what's the difference between you and the Torah? The only difference between you and the Torah, the Torah obligates you. Torah says this God, he's smart. Just like you know you're smart, your creator at least has to be just as smart as you. And there's no human on earth that from the beginning of time until the end of time that ever started working on something for no reason. No human on earth ever put anything together for no purpose whatsoever. No human on earth ever built a chair for no reason. You ask him, what are you doing that for? No reason. What do you mean? Is there a purpose for this chair? Well, yeah, I guess you can sit in it. Oh, so it does have a purpose. There's no such thing as a purposeless creation. So if the creation knows enough, has accumulated enough knowledge to know that no creation can be purposeless, then obviously the creator that created the creation also knows he can't create something for no purpose. The creator has to be, at the very least, as smart as the creation. Obviously, he's much smarter, but the point is, at the very least, just as smart. So if the creation knows that it's never going to create something for no reason. There always has to be a reason. There always has to have some type of purpose for all creations. That means your creator also knows there has to be a purpose. That creator had to give you the instruction set. Because if he knows that there has to be a purpose, that means the creation needs to know what its purpose is. Because without the creation knowing what the purpose is, there's no purpose. So now we go back to the original question. The original question is, why does there have to be a God? Because somebody had to create the first thing, the first being, the beginning. And since scientists sometimes don't like to hear the word God, they call it intelligent design. Call it whatever you want. Point is, there has to be something. And that something had to create some type of instruction set. That instruction set is called a Torah. There's many, many ways to prove it. This is just one simple, rational way to do it. There has to be an instruction set, and no one can dispute that this is it. No one can dispute it. You can say you don't believe in it because you don't know enough about it, or even if you claim to know enough about it, you can say, I just don't want to follow it. But the reality of it is, this instruction set, the only reason... Why people argue against this instruction set, and they don't argue against the instruction set you get with your iPhone. They don't argue against the instruction set you get with your television. They don't argue with the instruction set that you get from the government. They don't argue with the instruction set that you get from anything else. Is because with this instruction set, you have a choice. You have a choice of whether you can accept it or not. With the iPhone, you don't have a choice. Even though at the bottom it says accept or not accept, in reality, if you press decline, your phone's not going to work. 
when you sign a contract with a company and said you accept our conditions, if you say no, you don't get the job. So in reality, it's a choice, but it's really no choice. It's a choice, but it's really no choice. It's really, the only choice is yes, or get out of our face. Yes, or go away. With the Torah, you have a choice. You have a choice of whether you want to accept it or not, because there's consequences for that choice. If there was no choice, there wouldn't be consequences. So one of the questions you asked before this year started was about free choice. Is a free choice removed from someone? If the free choice of a person was removed from him, then Hashem would not be permitted from his own rules to punish him. This is the reason why Hashem did not punish Pao. Pao, despite all of the damage he caused Am Yisrael, Hashem left him alive. He was the only one alive that survived the Sea of Reeds collapsing on all of the Egyptians. And he actually became the king of Nineveh. He became the king of Nineveh. And that's why Nineveh did Shuvah in 40 days, because Pao already knew that Hashem is real. But why did Hashem leave him alive? Some people say, oh, it's because uh, he wanted to prove it to Paro. Who's Paro Bechla? You really need to prove it to Paro? No. The reason why is because Hashem removed his free choice. As soon as he removed his free choice, he can't punish him. So in essence, when someone's free choice is removed, that's obviously excluded from the equation. Here you have a choice. Your choice is, do you want to listen to God or not? And the difference between the Torah and your iPhone instructions, and the New Testament, the Quran, the everything else, is this has consequences. This has consequences. When you listen to the Torah, it has consequences. When you don't, it also has consequences. That's as simple as it gets. So the thing is that when a person understands there has to be a creator. The creator has to have some type of instruction set. Immediately arrives at Yirat Shemayim. Immediately scared. And that's why it says, if, if you have no wisdom, if you're like the donkey, of course you're not going to be afraid of God. If you have no Torah, which is what the Chokhmah is, what wisdom is from the Torah, if you have no Torah, of course you're not going to be afraid of God. Because you don't believe in Him. Now what about people that say, no, no, I believe in God, but um, I love Him. I'm not scared of Him. That means you believe in a false God. You believe in a God, but it's not the God of Israel. And the reason is because the God of Israel says that if you do certain things, you get rewarded. If you do other things, you get punished. Now the Tiferet Israel interprets this is that what does it mean to believe in God? And he says the following. He says, first and foremost, to believe in God means that you believe in a divine origin of the Torah. Meaning that you believe that this creator is obviously more intelligent than you, must have given an instruction set. Must have given an instruction set. Now, it cannot be the Quran that came up 1,500 years ago since the Quran came after Christianity. It cannot be the Christianity since Christianity was 2,000 years ago, almost 1,500 years after Judaism, and they themselves say that Judaism preceded them. 
It cannot be the idol because the idol is still here and he's still worth only 15 bucks in Chinatown. The only thing that it leads to is to the Torah. So the first thing that Tiferet Israel says, you must believe that the Torah is not just a book, chas shalom, like a history book, but it is divine, meaning the hand of God put it together. It must be from God. If you are one of these people that says, no, we believe in a Torah, but there's like one verse, I don't believe in a Torah, you, my friend, have put your entire olam in jeopardy. According to the Rambam, you have no share of the world to come. One verse. You don't believe it's from God? You have no share of the world to come. To that extent. So first thing, Tiferet Yisrael says, and I'll answer the question after I finish these two points, is you must believe the Torah is from God. Second point, you must believe in divine reward and punishment. If there is no reward and punishment, it's not from God. If your lifestyle, if your world, if your mentality does not have reward and punishment, you, my friend, live in La La Land. You live with the Care Bears and the unicorns. You don't live in the world. Because the world we live in has reward and punishment whether you like it or not. Whether you agree with it or not, there's still going to be traffic. And there's a punishment for traffic. You have to waste four hours of your day waiting on it. If you try to cut off everybody and go through the red sign, there's a punishment for doing that too. You're putting other lives at risk. Whether you agree with it or not is irrelevant. The government instilled a law and they didn't ask you for permission. They said, if you blow through the red sign, you, my friend, have a problem. If there is a problem because somebody hits you, if there's a problem because you're just going to get a fine, irrelevant, you have a problem. You violated the law. Whether you agree with the law or not is irrelevant. Meaning that in your natural state, you know that you live in the world with reward and punishment. You work hard, naturally you're supposed to succeed, but in general you know that that's supposed to be the outcome, eventually. You don't work, you know that naturally you're going to become homeless at some point. Naturally. There's a reward and punishment. You keep cursing your wife out, naturally she's going to poison you, most likely, or at least leave you. On the best case, she'll leave you. On a more likely case, most likely she'll kill you. You poison your kids with filthy language and filthy televisions and filthy internet and filthy hobbies. They eventually are going to go against you. They're going to use all of that knowledge to go against you. Why? They're going to learn on TV how people do things and how, do, you know, against their parents. And they're going to follow you. Oh, this is cool. Look. There's a show on MTV where the kid keeps booby-trapping his father. That sounds like fun. They had a whole show about it. When I was a kid, I don't know, 20-something years ago, they had a whole show about it where the kid kept torturing his father, the whole show. He'd put fireworks under his chair, he'd mess with his food, all types of things. So what do kids that watch it do? They did the same thing to their father. Are you surprised that this generation is full of degenerates? We have, every day, hundreds of thousands 
of people that are going to be our future leaders, future presidents, future CEOs, future doctors, future lawyers, future people we put our lives on the line in their hands. They may heal us. They may get us out of jail. They may fight a battle for us. They may vote for something for us. They are going to represent us in the future. And these hundreds of thousands of kids are going to cocaine parties, ecstasy parties, alcohol parties, prostitution parties, every day. That's the future. Every day. All of the future leaders go to ecstasy parties, techno parties, garbage parties, Ta'avat Hashem parties, Gehenom parties, Sodom and Gomorrah parties, every day. Every day. That's your future. That's your future leaders. Why? Their parents said you could watch TV. You could freely surf the internet. Here's an allowance of a hundred bucks a week. Go do whatever you want with it. Go do. Go do what you want with it. Have fun. Oh, you don't want to go to school anyway? You want to drop out, honey? Okay, don't worry about it. You can stay home. You're only 13 years old. It's okay. You're already an adult. You can stay home. You can stay home. And you'll just, you'll educate yourself on YouTube. You'll educate yourself. Oh, honey, you like smoking weed. It makes you feel better. Okay, no problem, honey. I, I believe in you. I know you're, I know you're going to protect yourself. I know you're not going to do anything stupid. Oh, honey, you're addicted to cocaine. Oh, you can get off it. I trust you. I trust you. Give the kid freedom. Do what you want, son. I love you. I just don't want to hear you cry. And eventually, David Amelech tells us it's the parents that cry. Because the child is turned into a ben sore The child is turned into a wayward child. Where if the Sanhedrin had the ability, if they were still in power, they would have to kill him. As a child. Why? Kill him while he's still a minor sinner. Minor sinner. That's point number two. Last but not least of this specific point, then we'll answer your question is, you must believe not only in this reward and punishment, not only in the Torah coming from God, but you must believe in the eternal existence of the human soul. Meaning, you must believe that this is just a corridor. You are here temporarily. You're in this world temporarily. This is not real life. This is temporary life. Real life comes as a result. Real life comes as a result of what you do here. You do good, you have eternal good. You do bad, you have eternal hot place. Anyone that tells you otherwise is a liar. Anyone that tells you that God loves you regardless of what you do, and all Jews have a chilek of ulama ba. Yes, Olam Abba has two places. One is warm, one is not. One has lava, and the other one has trees and wonderful things. Anyone that tells you that all Jews are going to do tshuva before the Mashiach comes, need to look at Ilchot Tshuva. The Rambam in Ilchot Tshuva says, yes, all Jews will do tshuva before the Mashiach comes, if they survive. 
all the Jews that survive the Messianic days, the 15 days of darkness, the time where Hashem is going to destroy all of the Rashaim. We're not talking about the Rashaim Goim. We're talking about the Rashaim Jews. 15 days of darkness, similar to the several days of darkness we had in Egypt. Rambam says if they survive, they'll do tshuva. Full tshuva. They already did tshuva beforehand, but they'll get to the culmination point. They'll get to be the 50th level of Kedusha. They'll go from 50th level of Tum'ah to 50th level of Kedusha. Oh, Chaim HaKadosh says. Rambam says, yeah, if they survive, we're good. If you survive. If by the time the Mashiach arrives, you're not already Beki, expert in Alachot Shabbat, you have no chance, my friend. If you're not keeping kosher inside the house and outside the house, you have a problem. If you're not keeping Tarat Mishpacha, you're not wasting seed, you're not stealing, you're not have worked on your midot to clean yourself up, you, my friend, have a serious, serious problem. Because time ran out. So, here, when someone understands that their neshama is just stopping here for a little while, trying to collect some bonus, some stars, some diamonds, in order to enter eternity, if they don't understand this, everything else goes to waste. Why? There's no reason to do anything. If there is no eternity, you should never do one mitzvah. For what? For what? Why do a mitzvah? There's no eternity. If there's no eternity, there's no reason to keep Torah. Go ahead. Before, before, yeah, before Rabbi Mitzvah. After that, he's considered an adult. Well, no, it has to be, it could be earlier, but in general, they say that the, in the Torah, when they mentioned it, they said it never actually happened. They never actually killed the boy. Chazal, the, the sages never actually killed the boy, but they say that if a boy would fit all of these criterias, they would actually have to kill him. Now, we did a shiur in, uh, in New York, uh, and uh, you should know this, if you haven't watched that shiur, you should watch it, because uh, today we don't have one Ben Sorero More, we have plenty. We have many, many wayward children. But I'm not only talking about bad kids. Bad kids, unfortunately, it's like a plague today because of lack of education. But I'm not just talking about that. What I'm talking about is that according to Rav Moshe Feinstein, Zechat Tzadik Livacha, any time a Jew takes weed, pot, hashish, any of these drugs, and smokes them, takes them, and it's not for medicinal benefit, it's not for, like he doesn't have cancer, or uh, some type of other disease, he's just taking it recreationally, he is considered, for all intents and purposes, as a ben sorero more, where if the Sanhedrin was around, they would actually have to kill him, for weed, for pat. He says it's 100% a biblical sin. 
So obviously, if somebody has, I don't know, some type of disease, and uh, the the, uh, the marijuana is helping him uh, deal with pain, no problem, even though there, there is a Gemara that says that even for medicinal purposes, you're not allowed to take it unless there's no other choice. If there's no other, if there is another choice that doesn't get you high, it doesn't get you to a state of mind that's outside of the norm, if there's another choice, you have to take it. But if there is no other choice, then you can take it. But if there is another choice and you take it, you have a problem. If you're not even, if you don't even have a problem, you just like to get high, you have a bigger problem. So all of these kids that say, oh, no, no, I'm only doing weed. I'm not going to get to morphine. I'm not going to get to cocaine. I'm not going to get to ecstasy. I'm not going to get to that. You don't need to get to that. According to the Torah, even if it's just that, if you will, it's not really just anything. It's drugs. If it's just that, you still have a problem with God. You still have a very serious problem with God. We're not going to go through all the details of what the Allah is because I had a whole shiur about it for an hour and a half in New York. Anyone that wants to learn the real answer of what the Allah is about drugs, recreationally and so on, watch the shiur. But the point is, is that it's 100% forbidden. And even for medicinal purposes, there is limitations. Meaning there has to be no other choice. No other choice for you to be a... Uh, uh, cured. So, as far as the Ben Solomon, that's the uh, issue with that. Now, right, the reason why they compare someone that uh, does drugs, why Rob Moshe Feinstein compares the someone that does drugs to someone that's considered in the Torah as going against his parents, is because if the guy that's going against his parents, the reason why they kill him is because they said he is already a wayward child. Now, what does a wayward child do? He starts going against his parents. If he doesn't get what he wants, he starts stealing from them. And if he doesn't get what he wants, if, if they ran out of money, he's going to start stealing from other people. If the other people catch him stealing, he's going to end up murdering them. So we rather off killing him before he murders somebody. That's what a Ben Suleyemore is in the Torah. But Moshe Feinstein says, someone does drugs, the same exact thing. In the beginning, he just uses his own money. Later on, he starts stealing money from Abba and Ima. Later on, he starts stealing from his friends. Maybe his wife, maybe he's this one, maybe he's that one. Later on, it keeps getting bigger and bigger, but as soon as the nest or the well runs dry, or someone catches him, it's not beyond him to kill. It's no longer beyond him. Once someone is mentally or physically addicted to drugs, it's not beyond them to kill another person. Because once someone becomes addicted to drugs, they no longer value their own life. So they definitely don't value yours. This is also the reason why in Israel there, is, there are different uh, uh, laws for uh, kashrut. For kashrut, in Israel there is two types of kashrut uh, in restaurants. One kashrut is meadrin, or that level, and one kashrut is rabbanut. Now if it's, what's the difference? If you go to a restaurant, you see on the, uh, on the wall, Rabbanut, many of the religious people will not eat there. And the reason why is because there's no mashgiach present at all times. The, uh, the madrin has to have a mashgiach all the time. But sometimes you're going to see in Israel something very different. You're going to sometimes see a guy that says himself, listen, all my food is kosher. The chicken is kosher. The turkey is kosher. The lamb is kosher. It's all kosher. It's very easy to get kosher food in Israel. Very easy. 
He says, all my food is kosher, but I don't have the stamp. I don't have the certificate. Why don't you have the certificate? Because I don't keep Shabbat. In Israel, if the owner doesn't keep Shabbat, he cannot have a kosher restaurant. In Israel, it's supposed to be everywhere. If there's no kosher, if the owner does not keep Shabbat, he cannot have a kosher certificate. And the reason why is because they say if he doesn't keep Shabbat, doesn't matter that his food is kosher or not kosher. If he doesn't keep Shabbat, he obviously doesn't care about his own neshama. If he doesn't care about his own neshama, why would he care about your neshama to make sure that he follows all the laws of kosher to make sure you eat kosher food? He doesn't care about his own neshama. Why would he care about yours? If you know an owner, it's Mechalel Shabbat here, then obviously, like I said, the laws here are different. Here, they have a mashkiach. It's supposed to be a mashkiach all day. Many places do not have a mashkiach here all day. A place that doesn't have a mashkiach here all day, you shouldn't eat there. And even if they do have a mashkiach, if the mashkiach is a tembel, if the mashkiach is a fool, don't eat there. Like I know, for example, there's one guy that I know is the Yeshamayim. I know him personally. He used to come to my shiurim. He's a Talmud Chacham, but he used to like my shiurim. The first year I was doing shiurim, year, year and a half. He was my friend, my neighbor, and he was to come to my shiurim. He knows the entire written Torah by heart. He's a Chazan. I know he's Yireh Shamayim. I know he has Yirat Shamayim. If he's a, if he's a, uh, if he's a uh, mashkiach somewhere, I know I have no problem with that place. Why? He has Yirat Shamayim. So, now, on the other hand, is another guy in the neighborhood, that also became a mashgiach. For whatever reason, people became mashgichim in our neighborhood over there. A lot of people became mashgichim. They pay 150 bucks. They barely know Allahot Shabbat, but they pay 150 bucks. They go to a course to become mashgiach. So anyway, this guy became mashgiach. Now, I know this guy personally. I know him a little bit. He's 100% a kufel. 100% a kufel. The guy, Mama, I don't even know if he believes in God. But now, he is right now, presently, he's a mashgiach in a restaurant. That restaurant, salad, I wouldn't eat there. Salad, salad, I wouldn't eat there. Even if I wash it, I wouldn't eat it. I would be scared he'd maybe mess with it. You understand? So, again, you have to know the mashgiach. You can't just like, you know, so you have to try. You have to try your best. Yeah. Can lock and unlock, but then sometimes he leaves. Yeah, he has to turn on the flame. The, the, as far as cooking, it's supposed to be that a Jew turns on the flame. A Jew is monitoring the ingredients. A Jew is monitoring, in essence, everything. But, again, it's a, uh, if the uh, staff gets used to the mashgiach, the rabbi, leaving after he turned on the flame, after he took care of the ingredients, but he leaves until 9 o'clock at night. They know he's gone at 9 in the morning. He's not coming back till night. You can't eat in that place. Why? They know he's not coming back. They can do whatever they want. They can put pig in there. They can put cats in there. They can put you in there. They can put whatever they want in there. Why? Because they know he's not. the mashgiach is not coming for another 12 hours. But if it's the type of place where the mashgiach shows up at different times, random, you have certain people that certain poskim that say that you know, there may be some leniencies in certain places. But in general, you need to know who the mashgiach is. You need to know where you're eating. It's a very, very difficult place because in general, right now, there's even difficulties in confirming some of the meat. Forget the kosher restaurants. 
Some religious people, like the really Dolei Yisrael, many of them don't even eat meat from the butcher, unless they know the butcher. Because there's a lot of problems. So again, when you have Yirat Shemaim, you don't have to worry about stuff like this. Why? Because you know everything's from God. Use wisdom, you get to God. Reshit Chochmah Yirat Hashem. Beginning of wisdom is fear of God. So now, that's the first thing you obviously get to. If you're in Israel, if you're in Israel, then you have to eat Madrin. If it says just Rabbanut in Israel, then I personally would not eat that. In, in America, there's no such thing. In America, everything is Madrin. Everything is glut or whatever. Everything in the restaurants are glut. There's no, sometimes there's no Mashgiach, sometimes there is, but everything is the same standard here. There's no two standards in many places. How do you know if there's a Mashgiach or not? Go in the kitchen. Yeah, I'm saying, go in the kitchen. No, if, in Israel, there's two different standards. In America, from my knowledge, there's only one standard. Supposed to be. But sometimes, some places don't follow to that extent. They don't have mashkiach there all day. They're mashkiach for part of the day. Like I know another mashkiach, he's there for part of the day. Because he runs five other businesses. He's a mashkiach, but he also runs five other businesses. He's an entrepreneur. So yeah, he's a great businessman, but terrible mashkiach, because he's never there. Of course the sore. Yeah, of course it's sure. But again, people have a problem because they made made money their God. When they make money their God, they follow their God everywhere. When God is in Sears, they go to Sears. God is in Macy's, they go to Macy's. When God is in Gehenom, they go to Gehenom. God is in Vegas, they go to Vegas. Their God is in stock market, they go to stock market. Wherever it is, they follow Him. So when people make money their God, they follow Him everywhere. Even if it means that sometimes they have to pretend... Like they're following the God of Israel. So they put a beard on, they put a hat on, they put black and white on, which is the modern-day Jewish uniform. So it looks good. They look religious. But in reality, they have a different God. What do you do? You have to check. You have to check. You have to be very careful who you deal with. In general, like I told you, it's a, uh, it depends how much you can handle. Different people, it's not, this is not like a rule of thumb where everybody can handle the same thing. If you're a brand new Baal Tshuva, you just started keeping Shabbat last week, this last section is not 100% for you. And the reason why is because right now we have to work on you keeping Shabbat. Right now we have to work on you keeping kosher bechlal at all. Stop eating shrimp. Six months from now, a year from now, even two years from now, we'll start telling you, oh, you know the restaurant that you go to, that kosher? You shouldn't really eat that food. Even though it's kosher, eat at home. Certain gdolim do not eat at all at any restaurants. As a matter of fact, most gdolim don't eat at all outside, period. Um, I mean, it's a... Uh, in general, it's... There's a lot of different other reasons, not just because of kosher. There's other reasons of why they don't. Ken, Ken, costume, costume. Custom. Yeah. So yeah, these these people these people have a special uh, special genome. But you know, there's other shem do tshuva. So now, when someone has 
wisdom. When someone has Torah, then he's going to get to Yerat Shemayim. When someone doesn't have Torah, he's not going to get to Yerat Shemayim. Why? Because without Torah, there's no way for you to know that you're supposed to be scared of something. After this, he says, Imen Dat, Imen Dat, if there's no knowledge, there's no understanding. En Bina. Imen Bina and Dat, if there's no understanding, there's no knowledge. So like we said before, there are different levels of intellect. Chuchmah Bina Vadat. Chuchmah is, in essence, wisdom. You have accumulated knowledge that you've accumulated over time. You know that a certain thing is called a pear. Certain fruit is called a apple. You've accumulated certain knowledge. You've accumulated knowledge about medicine. You've accumulated knowledge about architecture, and so on and so forth. That's chokhmah. That's wisdom. You've accumulated over time. The next thing is called bina. Bina is being able to break things down and understand one thing from another. One thing from another. So, for example, if somebody walks in right now, somebody walks in right now, and they, are, they have uh, mud on their shoes, then you can know it's raining outside. You can understand within a few seconds that it's raining outside, or it rained right recently, or at least they stepped in a puddle. You understood from the mud. You don't need to know, you don't need to go outside to check if it's raining. You don't need to ask the guy, is it raining? You know that just the fact that he has mud on his shoes and it's wet, that he stepped into water and mud. It's either because it's a puddle, a pre-existing puddle from rain that happened earlier, or if it's from rain that's happening now. Either way, something happened. And that's where the mud came from. It didn't just appear. So that is knowledge. Abina, understanding. You understood something from another. That, which is knowledge, the ultimate knowledge, is to understand things that are not that are beyond, meaning to understand the ultimate purpose of things in a sense of being able to decide good and bad. So, for example, if you have a, um, a guy walking in here with mud, And you see that everyone looks at him funny. Because walking to a Beknesset with mud, it's not exactly the greatest idea. So immediately, you don't need to ask people for their opinion. You could already arrive at a conclusion that if you also have a situation like this, you should clean yourself up before you come in. You understood it's not a good thing to do. But then... And obviously it gets deeper than this. So here he's telling you, if you have no knowledge, then there's no understanding. If there's no understanding, then there's no knowledge. Now, to get to a basic level of knowledge, basic level of chokhmah, basic level of wisdom, anyone's going to get to, just by being alive. You're going to accumulate knowledge. You don't have to be Jewish to do that. You don't have to learn to often do it. Just being alive. You see things. You see different things. You learn certain things. To be able to understand one thing from another, again, you're also going to reach that level of, uh, of intellect simply by being alive. 
you're going to know that if guy came in with mud, you know that it rained outside. You don't need to learn to offer this. But to decide what's good and bad, you could only do a Torah. Because only the Torah is reliable enough to tell you on a consistent basis what's good and what's bad. And it'll never change. If it's good today, it's always going to be good. If it's bad today, it's always going to be bad. So when someone tells you that you're never allowed to drive on Shabbat to the Beit even though it's a nice, cute mitzvah to go to the Beit Knesset, it's a nice mitzvah, but you're never allowed to, uh, to drive on Shabbat just to fulfill this mitzvah. Thank you. Just to fulfill this mitzvah, simply because the mitzvah of keeping Shabbat is much bigger than the mitzvah of Beit Knesset. So if someone tells you that some big rabbi told them in secret, told them in secret, that you are allowed, because you live in America, which is a population of about 6 million Jews, that are mostly reform and conservative, and even the Orthodox are very, very weak to some extent. Not all of them, of course, but many are weak. So since it's such a weak, weak nation as a whole, weak generation as a whole, even weaker in the exile, some big rabbi, that's one of the giants of the generation, told some other small, tiny, little, no-name rabbi, in secret, your kila has special rules. They could drive to your Beknesset on Shabbat. This is no different than Christianity. No different. This is no different than Islam. The rabbi that says that some other big rabbi, whatever name they want to drop, people drop names like it's their best friends. It's, oh yeah, Rav Kanievsky. Yeah, 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 Rav Kanievsky. Yeah, he knows you. They even, Rav Kanievsky, you're just throwing his name like he's your boy from school. Oh yeah, Ravad, yeah, yeah, Ravad, yeah, I read his book. Yeah, you read his book. You even know how to read Hebrew? What'd you read? People, oh, no, no, his son, his son. What's his name? Yitzchak. Yitzchak. People just drop names like it's their friends. No, this rabbi. Yeah, no, I heard this rabbi. No, he came to my keila. He gave a lecture. I shook his hand. Yeah, he shook everybody's hand. He's a decent human being. So people say, no, no, that rabbi, that big rabbi told my rabbi that it's okay for me or it's okay for my keila to drive on Shabbat, to Beknesset. You, my friend, are Christian. You're reform. You're conservative. You're actually worse than a Muslim. Because a Muslim, at least, he's following whatever he thinks is true. You know it's false. You know it's false. Most Christians believe what they believe is true. Despite the fact that it's foolish, they believe it's true. You know it's false. So you're worse than them. So all of those people that keep dropping names and trying to make excuses for themselves, you need to know you're not following anything. You're following your own religion. You should stay home. You shouldn't go to Beknesset. And if you're already going to drive to Beknesset, why bother? Why bother? Go to the beach. Go somewhere else. Why show other Jews that you are driving on Shabbat? 
enticing other Jews to potentially drive on Shabbat also. One of the guys, a brand new Baal Tshuva, he just stopped driving on Shabbat, but he sees the guy that gets an Aliyah driving on Shabbat. He says, ah, see, I get an Aliyah, you just need money here. You don't need to follow religion. Why are you making other people fail? Because you're a loser. Why? Why? Either don't come or don't drive. Simple. So, the rabbi that says you're allowed to drive or doesn't say anything about it, Gemara in Masichet Shabbat, page 54, says, Mashiach comes, he's the first one he will punish. Just like he did at the time of the Bet HaMikdash. All of the rabbis that didn't say anything, Hashem punished them first. Why? They didn't say anything. They had knowledge, they didn't say anything. So even more so, rabbi that actually made up this law, where he tells his keilah, no, some big rabbi told me it's mutar, it's allowed for us. This is complete garbage. There's no such thing. We don't have giants that can do that. And even if Moshe Rabbeinu came down and told you you're allowed to drive on Shabbat, you're still not allowed to drive on Shabbat. Why? Because Torah is permanent. So now, how do people fail? They fail when they humanize the Torah. When they humanize it. When they make it human, they start adding things to it. But there's a specific law not to do that. So, when a person uses their intellect the right way, they know that anyone that tells you such a thing is full of it. They know it's full of it. There's no such thing as being allowed to drive on Shabbat because you're weak, because you're old, because you're ugly, because you have six heads, because of whatever other excuse you came up with, because the rabbi likes you, because you're dating someone that's really nice, because you're rich, because you're poor, because you have a root canal. Stay home. Stay home. Ten Commandments, Fourth Commandment says, don't drive on Shabbat. Don't drive on Shabbat, it says. It doesn't say go to the Knesset on Shabbat in your car. It doesn't say that. So for all those people that are making new rules, just you know, not only do you get punished for violating Shabbat, but you also get punished for treating Hashem with casualness, like He's your boy. You treated Hashem with casualness. No, no, no. You never ever tell him you can drive to your house. You can never ever tell him you can drive to my house on Shabbat. Ever. Never ever tell him. If he drives to your house on his own, it's one thing. You can never tell him you can drive on Shabbat. It's bad what Chabad is doing. Have you attended my lectures? Is Chabad part of Judaism? If Chabad is part of Judaism, then it's not good what they're doing. If Chabad is a different religion, which some rabbis say it is, then it is a problem. The old Chabads, you know, the founders of Chabad, the Tzadikim Gmurim, amazing people. The Chabad of today, not as much. Not because of Chashver Shalom, Chabad as a whole, but the style of what they're doing in many places that I know of is against the Torah. So, for example... If you're telling me that what Chabad is doing in your area is telling people, drive on Shabbat because hopefully one day you'll do tshuva, 
that is 100% against the Torah, and both the person saying drive on Shabbat and the person driving on Shabbat get the same punishment. They both go a nice level, very, very warm place in Gainom, a nice villa over there for about eternity. Why? It's against the Torah. It's a new law. Not allowed to create new laws, not allowed to drive on Shabbat. Now, if you invite someone to come to your house, you say, come to my house for Shabbat dinner. Now you know there's a possibility he's going to drive. He's a, obviously he doesn't keep anything. You want to invite him, come over. If he drives on his own, it's not your problem. But that's for once, one time. Once you know that he drove to your house, you have to tell him you can't drive on Shabbat. So the next time you come, first of all, try to convince him to stay at your house for Shabbat. If he ends up leaving anyway, it's not your problem. But the next time, you have to tell him, if you're going to come to my house for Shabbat, you can't drive. You can't drive on Shabbat. You don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card because of Baalei Tshuva. So if the Chabad or whatever other place says drive now and don't drive later, this is absolutely asur. If that's what you meant, that's what they're doing, then again, one time, yes, uh, again, not telling them to drive. Never ever telling them to drive. But again, the problem that I see, the reason why this Chabad question is not new, is because it's not one time. Many places, not all obviously, there are many places that are part of Chabad that are phenomenal, great, amazing, Kedoshim. But unfortunately some that have stolen the Chabad name, it's not really Chabad, they call themselves Chabad. Real Chabad is Kodesh. Real Chabad. Well, Chabadniks, they're willing to die for any mitzvah. Pick a mitzvah, they're willing to die for it. Real Chabadniks were willing to die for mitzvah of Chanukah. One candle. Willing to die for mitzvah tzitzit. Die, die. Mitzvah tzitzit, they're willing to die for it. Any mitzvah, pick it, they're willing to die for it. Even though you don't have to die. They were, real Chabadniks were so holy, they want to die for any mitzvah. Today, some people are wearing the Chabad banner, the beard, the hat, the symbol on the Beknesset, but they're not really Chabad. It's, a, it's like a costume. No, no, it's just, it's in general, it's under the umbrella. Everyone thinks it's Chabad. In reality, in Shemaim, they say, no, that's not Chabad, that's Chilu Hashem. Not Chabad, Chilu Hashem. Why? Because they tell people, oh yeah, park over here, park over here, park over here, park over here. The guy comes to the Beknesset with the car on, on Shabbat, with the car. For 20 years, no one ever says anything. Or even worse, one of my students stopped driving on Shabbat, finally, Baruch Hashem. She saw one of our videos, she stopped driving on Shabbat. What does the guy tell her? Oh, how come you don't come to our Beknesset anymore? She says, because it's driving on Shabbat. She goes, yeah, it's okay, Hashem understands. Hashem understands you, Hashem One of the pleasures that the tzaddikim are going to get is seeing the wicked suffer. It's what happens. One of the punishments of the wicked, the time of Mashiach, is to go see all the tzaddikim get their reward. This is what I could have had if I didn't drive on Shabbat. So sometimes you have costumes. You have people wearing costumes. And the people wearing costumes call themselves Chabad, call themselves Breslev, call themselves all types of names. 
try to connect themselves to tzaddikim gemurim, to very, very holy rabbis, but in reality, they're 100% korach, esav. Rishayim. It's fake. So if anyone tells you you're allowed to drive on Shabbat for any other reason other than pikuach nefesh, he's esav. Call him esav. Don't call him chabad. Don't call him a Jew. Call him esav. He looks and he sounds like Yaakov, but he's Esav. You understand? So now, how do we know if it's the right thing to do or not? Hashem gave us Dat. Hashem gave us Bina. Hashem gave us Chokhmah. He gave us all these things. Just as a human being, you were able to accumulate knowledge. Human being, that's what your chokhmah. Just as a human being, you are able to understand one thing from another. That's bina. I'm sorry, it's a um, bina, bina. And just as a human being, by using the Torah, you are able to attain that. Why? You understand what's right and wrong. You understand what you have to follow and what you don't have to follow. At the time of the Mashiach, people are going to need to know the truth. Now today, there are many different places trying to convince people that they know the truth. Christianity is trying to do it. Missionaries within Judaism, calling themselves Jews, but they're really Christians, are trying to do it. People that are coming from different places in the world are trying to do it. Now, when it comes to DNA, for example... Many people are trying to prove their Judaism through DNA. They say, listen, we're part of the Anusim, we're part of uh, heritage, we have this, we have that, and they, you know, they go through different tests and they say, listen, I have X amount of Ashkenazi in me, or X amount of Sephardic in me, or X amount related to this family, but I don't know how. According to Alacha, you cannot rely on it. You cannot rely on it, you cannot base Judaism based on DNA, and the reason why is because there is actually another company in Israel, an Israeli company, that has found technology to change DNA. They have technology to change your DNA. You give them one DNA, they work on it for a little bit of time, they give you a different one. Something similar. Something similar but a little different. But the point is DNA can be changed. Therefore it is not reliable. So that's one. As far as what about the DNA of the Mashiach, we do know that there are some people that are that can track their lineage all the way to David Melech, but that's only a small fraction of people. We've been in the exile for over two thousand years, so many people that are related to David Melech do not know that they are. Do not know. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of people that are connected do not know that they are. There's only a handful of people that say that they are, and even then there's certain questions if they really are or not. So it's been too long, there's been too many exiles, there's been too many pogroms, there's been too much intermarriage, there's been too much, all types of things that we've gone through, hardship and so on, to really prove it. So how are we going to know? How are we going to know? Well, first and foremost, one of the prophecies of what's going to happen at the end of days is that there's going to be Meshichei Shekel. It's going to be false messiahs. 
people are going to come and say, I'm the Mashiach. To such an extent, it's going to happen on a regular basis. Hashem says, you don't have to worry about that. If you use this pattern that Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah gave you over here, you have nothing to worry about. He says, first and foremost, he meant Torah and Derech Eretz. So Mashiach, first and foremost, you need to know he's got to be a perfect human being. His midot have to be pristine. He can't be a hothead. He can't be the guy that throws the chair across the room because you don't like his halacha. He can't be that guy. He can't be the guy that loses his mind just because his wife didn't look at him the right way. He can't be the guy that slaps his kid in the middle of kindergarten because the kid didn't get a 95 on the test. can't be that guy. He has to be with good midot. Which means he has to have Torah. Next thing is, he has to have Yirat Shemaim. Which means that if he has Yirat Shemaim, he must have a high level of Torah. Because Yirat Shemaim is not something you can attain very easily. You have to work on it. Next thing is, he has to have Da'at and Bina. Not just knowledge like an average person. Not just Bina like an average person, but he has to have Da'at, meaning he has to know, always be able to make the right decisions. Because Hashem is going to instill in him Ruach HaKodesh. But that Ruach HaKodesh cannot enter an imperfect place, an imperfect Neshama. So first and foremost, if your Mashiach is not perfect, if he's a sinner like the Christian Mashiach, is a major sinner that goes against God. He's a womanizer, he's a Mechalel Shabbat, he's an idiot, he's a kofer, he's a magician, he's a lot of things, this is a J.C. Penny guy. So he definitely can't be the Mashiach. Muhammad is a murderer, so he definitely can't be a Mashiach. Pedophile and a lot of other things. So they can't be Mashiach. Buddha is too fat to be Mashiach. <laughs> He's definitely in Taref. So Mashiach has to be a kosher human being. Has to be a perfect human being. Has to be a Jew, obviously. So that's the one thing. But he also has to get to a certain level where the Ruach HaKodesh can enter him. Now, the reason why is because in the, the Prophet says that the Mashiach is going to get to such a high level that he's going to be able to smell your sins. But how does he know if you're sinning in the first place or not? Because he's able to see and smell, or he's able to smell your Yirat Shemaim. Do you have Yirat Shemaim or not? There's no excuses. Hey, listen, I go to Shur every Tuesday, and I, I late Tefillin. Okay, it's 11.30, I late Tefillin, but I did it. I did Kriyat Shema before I went to sleep. Even I went to sleep at 4 o'clock in the morning after the club, but I went to sleep and I did Kriyat Shema. There's no excuses. There's no excuses. Mashiach comes, he could smell it. He could smell your bad midot, your good midot. Smell it. And it says when he speaks, it's judgment. Meaning... The words coming out of his mouth, he's not going to say, hey, how are you? How are you doing? How are the kids? No, 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 my friend. Din. Alive or dead. Yes, Yerat Shemaim. Come with me, I'll protect you. No, Yerat Shemaim. Gzar Din Mavet. That's the Mashiach. Mashiach is not your friend. Mashiach Tzadik Gamu. 
So now, how are we going to know with all these Meshichesh Shekel, all of these fake prophets, how are we going to know? What Hashem says to the prophet, He says, remember, before the Mashiach arrives, first I have to send Eliyahu Navi. Three days before Eliyahu Navi comes, Three days before the Mashiach comes, Eliyahu Navi is going to be sent from Shemaim. Eliyahu Navi is an angel. He's going to publicize to the world, Mashiach is here. You have three days. How do I know it's Eliyahu Navi? It says in the prophets. It says in the Torah. Oh, well, how do we know that Hashem was Hashem? Because He made sure we knew. How do we know that He's, he's the one giving us the Torah? Because He made sure we knew. He did it in public. Your Neshama saw it. The point being is that Hashem, when Hashem wants you to know something... He makes sure you know it. He makes sure you know it. So, for example, at the time of Mount Sinai, he wanted the whole world to know that it's him talking. So what did he do? He spoke in a voice, but his real voice, to such an extent that everyone died. No one can handle his voice. If, let's say, for example, he only spoke to Moses, then people could later on say, yeah, you know what, no one really heard God speak, so maybe Moses just made it up. Maybe Moses is just a clever speaker. Maybe he outsmarted 20 million people. Listen, Obama did. 300 million. A bunch of politicians outsmart people. So maybe Moses did it. So Hashem says, no, we can't have that. What? First of all, I'm going to make Moses have a lisp. Have a stutter. Both. Have every stammer. All types of speech impediments. Why? Because they're going to say that he's a sweet talker. He's such a good speaker, that's why we voted for him. That's one. Two, when Hashem speaks, everyone knows it. There's no doubt. So when Hashem wanted us to know that it's him giving us the Torah, he made sure that there's no doubt to such an extent that even the Goim, even the Goim knew when they sent the spies, when Yeshua ben Nun sent the spies, Rachav, said, oh, we heard what your God did. We heard. How did they hear? What, there was a uh, Facebook? Twitter? How did they hear? Newspapers? No. They heard the voice. They heard. They saw. Whole world, everyone knew that God spoke to Am Yisrael. Hashem wanted to make sure everyone knows God speaking. He's giving the Torah to Am Yisrael. Everyone knows. There's no doubts. That's why none of the religions doubt the Torah. No one says the Torah is not valid. Now what do they say? They say that the Torah stopped working. Went on pension. Went retirement. Their new book is the continuation. Their new book is the retirement plan. Their New Testament, their False Testament, their Quran. All that stuff is the new stuff. And the old Torah, it's old. They went on retirement. Funny thing is, the funny thing is, how do you prove that all religions except Judaism... All religions that stem from Judaism, they're all fake. In one sentence, for all of them. Now you obviously can prove that all of them are fake individually. You see their mistakes that they have in their scripture. We can go have a whole lecture about how to prove they're all fake. For each one of them. But I'm saying one sentence that applies to all of them. No witnesses is one thing, but again, it's a... They're going to tell you, why do we... I had a Christian guy tell me... Why do I need a witness for God? I trust Him. Some irrationalized it. No, no, no. You're in the right direction. You're in the right direction. 
Need proof, yes, but they're going to rationalize it. Someone's looking for excuses, going to find them. Right. right. So here's, here's the way. Here's the chidush. Here's the chidush. Oh, here's the chidush. The chidush is, is that all of them say that the Torah is real. Am Yisrael got it. The Arabs say Am Yisrael got it. They call us the uh, the um, people of the book. The Christians also agree. They say that the Torah is real. Chosen people. But it stopped working. There's a new covenant. Both of them say. The, the Christians say that New Testament is a new covenant. Covenant, And the Muslims say that their thing is a new covenant. And so on. No. They kill us because God is telling them to do that. But... As far as as far as why why is the, how do you prove that they are fake, even if they look at it in themselves, is because if the Torah is not true anymore, it's not valid anymore, you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments anymore. You don't have to keep Shabbat anymore, right? According to the Christians, you don't have to keep Shabbat, or you keep Sunday. It's not the seventh day; it's the first day. Or you don't have to eat kosher anymore. Or you don't have to do tefillin anymore. Or you don't have to brit milah anymore. Or you don't have ta'at mishpachah anymore. All those things. You don't have to do anything anymore. So if all the laws are no longer applicable, why did you only pick one law in the entire Torah that is applicable? What's the law? Give a tithe. Give money. That's the only law that they all keep. They all keep that law. They all keep, you must give a tithe. It says it in the Torah, you have to give a tithe. Yeah, it also says in the Torah, you have to keep Shabbat. It says in the Torah, you can't be with a woman that's not your wife. It says in the Torah, a lot of things. Why only give money? Because the money is good for me. It pays for my plane. It pays for my boat. It pays for my house. It pays for the other house. It pays for his house too. Whether he's a Muslim, or he's a Christian, or he's a whatever. All of them agree you have to give money. Because it says in the Torah, liar, you're just a banker. You're not a religious person. Banker. So that's the thing. So that's how you know simply that this is the chokhmah of a ben adam. This is wisdom of a person. It's flawed. It's flawed. So now, last but not least, we have im in kemach and Torah. Imen Kemach and Torah is in essence a logical argument that can also turn into something that can build you or destroy you. In so many words, this is applying to the fact that without sustenance, without money, a person is not going to be able to have full focus to study Torah. He has to eat. We're not getting man from Shemaim at this generation. People need to eat. The rabbi needs to eat. The tamit chacham needs to eat. Without him eating, he won't be able to learn Torah. He won't be able to teach Torah. On the other hand, if there's no Torah, there's no money. So now many people say, listen, I can't become a tamit chacham because... And I can't learn Torah because I got to work. I got to work. 
We got to work on this day, on that day, and this day, and that day. And let's say you even got the guy to keep Shabbat. He doesn't work on Shabbat anymore. We tell him, listen, you need to learn Torah every day. In order for this Shabbat to really be a kosher Shabbat, you need to learn the halachot of Shabbat. In order for the kosher to be really kosher, you have to learn halachot of kosher. In order for modesty to be real modesty, you have to know what modesty is. You have to learn these things. You have to learn Torah every day. He goes, no, 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 I don't have time to learn Torah. I don't have time to learn Torah. Why you don't have time to learn Torah? I work. It says it in Kemach and Torah. If there's no money, there's no Torah. Once I get to be a millionaire, then I'll learn Torah. The problem is he's not reading the second part. He says, if there's no Torah, there's no Kemach. Meaning, you're confusing. When you use the excuse of money as the reason of why you're not learning Torah, you, my friend, are confusing the cause and effect. You think that you're making money because of you. Because you're a nice guy. Because you're smart. Because you're talented. You forgot, Hashem said to the Prophet, Hashem says, mine is the money, mine is the gold. It's all mine. Nothing is yours. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So now, when a person is not learning Torah simply because he says, I am working, Hashem says, you're confused. You're not working, you're confused. What are you confused? You're thinking that you're the one that's making the money. If you're the one, that, if you're thinking that you're the one that's making the money, then obviously you're going to make an excuse for the rest of your life, and eventually you're going to come up with an excuse why you need to work on Shabbat, and eventually you're going to come up with another excuse of why you need to cheat on your wife, and eventually you're going to come up with another excuse of why you need to take drugs, and eventually you're going to have to come up with another excuse of why you steal. You're going to keep making excuses forever. So a person needs to understand that if. They're using the tools that Hashem Yitbarach gave them. The first tool is Yirat Shemaim. Yirat Shemaim tells you that you need to understand. Before you do anything, ask yourself this. What does God think about this? What does God think about this action I'm about to take? What does God think about me waking up at 11 o'clock in the morning every day? What does God think about me going to clubs? What does God think about me overcharging my customers? What does God think about me being stingy? What does God think about me making $5,000 a month, but I only give 50 bucks a What does God think about that? What does He think? So I'll tell you what He thinks. When a person understands this Mishnah, he understands that everything in the world has a purpose. Everything. The only reason, the only reason why Hashem gives you money is for you to fulfill mitzvot. Only reason. He cares less about your big house. You can't take it to Allah by anyway. He cares less about your car. You can't take it anywhere either. You're probably not going to want it because you want a new one. Especially if it's fancy. You want a fancy one. Next one. He cares less about your IRA account and the stocks that you own. He cares less about the companies you own and the ventures you took. He cares less about all those things. The only reason why he's giving you money is simply so you can fulfill mitzvot. Now, when a person takes the money that Hashem gave him, he doesn't do that. He takes the $5,000 a month that he gets, the $10,000 a month that he gets, the $20,000 a month that he gets, and he uses it to get a car, 
get a house, eat out a few times a week, do his thing, and when it comes to tzedakah, he only has $20. He only has $50. He never has the ma'asel that he owes Hashem. He never has the 10% that he owes Hashem. In reality, you're stealing from God. It's not yours to take. It's not your money. You using 100% of your money, you're stealing. But you're not stealing from the Chabad house. You're not stealing from the school. You're not stealing from the company. You're stealing from God. Because God gave you the money so you can fulfill mitzvot, not so you could buy another car. So, a person needs to understand. Simply said, each person is given money to do mitzvot. It's given money to do mitzvot. If you're not doing mitzvot with your money, you have a very serious, serious problem in your mind. Why? Because now, the Torah is depending on that money. There's an avrech in the world depending on that $500 a month. There's a CD that's depending on the dollar. There's a movie that's supposed to help people do tshuva that's depending on the money. There's a kolel depending on the money. Now, of course, Hashem is going to give it to him in a different place. But this was your schut to take. This was your merit to take. This belonged to you. This chidush belonged to you. When you come up to Shemayim, they're going to tell you, why don't you do it? Look how many people didn't do tshuva because of you. Look at the guy, he ended up leaving Kolel because of you. He got stressed out, he had to go to work because you didn't send the money in. I had a guy one time say, yeah, you know what, uh, I want to, I talked to one of my lectures about uh, giving to Kolel. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know what, I'll do it. I'll, uh, I'll donate to the Kolel. I said, okay, great. You know, none of the money goes to me. It goes to the Kolel, no problem, send it to them. He goes, I'm only trusting you. I'm like, you don't have to trust me, go call the Kolel. You don't have to trust me. You don't have to trust anything. You're not giving me any money. I'm not getting any benefit out of it. Anyway, the guy says, okay, I'll give the money. He gives him 500 bucks. He says he's supposed to give like $500 a month. And Bo Hashem, he's very, very wealthy. And uh, I said, oh, Bo Hashem, somebody, you know, the coal is going to benefit. Some of is going to benefit. There's going to be more Torah in the world. Great. After a few months, maybe like six months or so, I talked to one of the rabbis from there. I'm like, oh, so is so-and-so still giving? He's good. He increased it me. He goes, no. He stopped after two months. It caused a lot of balagan for us. He gave for the first two months. He committed to give for, whatever, a year. But he, only, he stopped giving after two months. Why did he stop? We don't know. He stopped. Now, I know he didn't stop because of money. Because he's building a $3 million house right now. So five hundred dollars is not going to change anything. This is a problem. This is a very, very serious problem. When people commit to a mitzvah, and that mitzvah happens to be Torah, and you back out, you create a very serious problem for yourself. So, because the Torah is telling you right over here, in order for the Torah to continue growing, we need supporters. People are convinced that I still have $20 million from, uh, from Wall Street somehow. Every time I tell my story, I tell my, at the end of the story, we lost everything. But people are still convinced, oh, can you give me tzedaka? Give you tzedaka? I need tzedaka. Can you give me tzedaka? Can you give my company tzedaka? Can you, do, can you donate some CDs? Donate $50? No. Everybody thinks we're millionaires. Or, 
It's something else we get. Sometimes you get, I get guys tell me, oh, you know, I used to give so much staka when I had this money. I gave this and I gave that. And they tell me like a whole resume of all the things they gave in their life. It's like they remember it. It's like they put a memory stick in their head and they remember everything of all the money they ever gave in their life. And I gave this guy $3,000 and I gave that guy $8,000 and I did this. And every time there would be the Chagim, I gave this amount of money and I bought this Aliyah and I did this and I did this and I did this. And the whole time they tell me. So you're thinking, okay, great. This guy is Sadiq. This guy is, has a big heart. Yeah, I don't make that much money anymore, so, you know, I wish Hashem would just give me the money back. So I'm thinking to myself, maybe, maybe He's not giving you the money back because you didn't give it for the right reason. The only reason you gave the 8000 the 3000 the 5000 the 10000 the 50000 the 100000 was so you could tell people, you gave the 8000 the 5000 the 3000 and 10000 the 50000 the 100000 That's not mitzvah. It's gava. It's gava. It's prime. Hashem hates gava. Person with gava, Hashem hates him. It's one of the people Hashem hates. As a matter of fact, Rabbi Nachman bin Breslev says someone that has gava, someone that has pride, is very likely to become homosexual. He says because it stems, it comes from the same root. Interestingly enough, this is in a Sefer Amidot. Sefer Amidot. Sefer Amidot. In Sefer Amidot of Rabbi Nachman from Breslev, he says that a person that uh, is prideful is uh, is more likely to become homosexual. And he also says in Likutei uh, Ma'aran, I wrote it here, Torah Yud Aleph Ot Gimel, it says... A person who's prideful is typically an adulterer, a sex criminal, and so on. Niuf is not just adultery. Niuf also means wasting seed. Niuf also means, uh, uh, you know, all types of sex crimes. So he says he's more, he's someone that's uh, prideful is more likely to be a criminal, a sex criminal. Torah sex criminal. doesn't necessarily need to be a rapist or anything. But the point is that he's, uh, he's he's got a very very serious problem. Now, what what was the chidush? The chidush here, aside from what you heard, I guess for the first time, because maybe this is not part of what Breslov teaches. Oh, uh, oh, okay. So you read this then. The interesting thing is, is that the fact that Rabbi Nachman Breslov says that someone that's prideful is more likely to be homosexual is interesting because the homosexuals are proud, gay pride. So, Hashem doesn't like pride. So when you give tzedakah because you want pride, Hashem doesn't like that tzedakah. He doesn't like it. 